Christina, how are you doing? Oh gosh, I am doing so well. I'm looking forward to this. How are you, Andrew? I am doing extremely well as well. Um, tell me a little bit about your channel, unless you've already covered that with Stephen. No, no, uh, I just got here. So pretty Good. much I started out with the curiosity in UFOs and now I'm completely swept up with the entire scope of like the strange and mysterious because in the last two years I've been hosting shows on my channel which is under Christina Gomez and the research that I've done while also being a full-time college student I've noticed a convergence between the UFO mystery and the paranormal and I believe that there's a definite connection there in instances such as Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, the Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts, the Bradshaw Ranch in Sedona, Arizona, and many other hotspots globally, we are seeing reports of portals, cryptids, ghostly manifestations, and poltergeists right alongside UFO sightings, some of which are pretty up close and personal. So the door definitely has been like creaked open for me. And now it is a uh, like a unified mystery that I'm on a mission to, to solving and to finding the answers. But it's not just finding it answers in the UFO mystery, but also life after death and like all of the big questions of life. So my channel is all about journaling my research, journaling the, the path that I'm taking, because there is so much going on in the strange and the mysterious that you can't just cover one thing and hope for the best. They're, they're all, mm. in my opinion, interconnected. Yeah, that's an interesting thought, actually, because I think, I guess, do, do you think it, it changes what was, you know, maybe what was seen as silly stories or, or, or ghosts and things we can't explain to the scientific realm now? We're like, okay, but if it's UFO related, it's sort of a sciencey thing. That's a pretty interesting question. And I think that when it comes to ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, things that are strange, humans have always been interested in it. Now, originally, we had stories, we had myths and legends, but I've constantly come across this quote that myths and legends have a nugget of truth in them. And while they might be stretched over the centuries, and while people might think that they are just merely stories, the reason to why our ancestors originally began creating or telling these stories was one because they had a sighting of their own they couldn't explain or they were attempting to explain something that now science can do such as rain thunder and things like this but when when I'm doing the research when it comes to all of these different things I need to look at all of the aspects and I think that looking at myths and legends are just as important as looking at the scientific aspect as well and scientists while it's not necessarily always super public they've been trying to prove ghosts and UFOs and cryptids for quite some time now but currently in present day it is becoming becoming more common to to have that interest but also to do the research such as Robert Bigelow he is looking on he is funding research on looking at is there life after death does our consciousness go after uh, go on after our body passes and he is throwing in millions of dollars to find those answers and then we're, we also had the prim UFO preliminary report in June of 2021 released by the ODNI uh, talking about um, UFOs in a sense, right? It, it wasn't it wasn't really that tantalizing when we received that report, but it was a step forward. And then we got UFO hearings in May of 2022. So 
we're, we've always been interested in things like this, but now with the technological age that we're in, with the social media, with getting all this really quick information, more people are asking these questions because they truly want to know what the heck is going on. Was there something that initially got you into uh, spirituality and stuff? Well, I'm I'm not I'm not into spirituality per se, but I will say that there is a connection between the UFO mystery and the spiritualist movement that started in the 1800s and even to what it is today. When I originally started looking into the field, I was purely nuts and bolts. I wanted I wanted the tangible evidence, I wanted the facts, I wanted the science, I wanted the data, right? Because you can't deny those things. Facts don't care about your feelings. Probably one of my favorite mm. quotes as well, right? But when you're dealing ben with Shapiro, more, is it? exactly, but when you're dealing yeah. with more um, faith and uh, religions, which spiritualism is kind of turning into that, like the New Age movement, it, it's a bit more difficult to to really find that data with it but what i've learned over the years is that there is a connection between all of them you can't look at one without looking at the other actually if you bring all these paths together um spiritualism the history the science aspect the encounters that people have as well i think that when we're going up a mountain if you bring all of those together you might reach the top the fastest trying attempting to find the truth the fastest whatever the truth may be we all have our own interpretation on what that is but i think it'll be quicker to do than only taking one path like just the historical path just the science path and and i recently had dr diana pasulka on my radio show yesterday and she spoke about the connections between religion spirituality and ufos and it was truly fascinating to hear her interpretation of it because when we look at these things especially in the field that i'm in which is mostly the ufo the ufo field while i am more in the paranormal field as well people don't necessarily bring all of those together in one, but also have tangible evidence to back up their claims. In this case with Dr. Diana Pasulka, she brought in some really amazing facts and details that I couldn't have imagined that really opened my eyes to these types of questions. So I think that the more people that we speak to, the more research that we do, even if we might not agree with them or agree with them, it helps us understand or attempt to interpret what the truth may be. And then it talks about UFOs, the paranormal, the cryptids. Are they all interlinked or are they all completely separate entities that have nothing to do with one another hmm. and that's the big question isn't it and should we get into skinwalker ranch what why has skinwalker ranch captured the imagination in in a way like no other place skinwalker ranch is a fascinating location and it all started Back in, the, I think it's like the 70s or the 80s, where you had one family come in and they were having all these weird sightings. They end up putting it in the newspaper. They talk to George Knapp. They release a book talking about seeing portals, seeing UFOs, seeing cryptids, seeing dire wolves, which we know now are completely extinct. There's no possible way to see an entity like that one. And then later, people believe that wasn't actually a dire wolf, which are these ginormous wolves, for those that don't know. But it could have very well been a skinwalker 
well, what are skinwalkers? Why is it called Skinwalker Ranch? It's a pretty scary tale, actually. Shall I tell it, Andrew? Yeah, go on. So when we're looking at skinwalkers, first off, when we're looking at First Nation tribes, they do not like to use or even to talk about skinwalkers. It's, it's, it's very bad juju. If anything, if you talk about it, if you research it, you're actually attracting it to you. I recently had retired Navajo Ranger um, John Dover, who was one of the very, very few people in his Navajo tribe that actually did the research on this and attempt to follow the trail on skinwalkers and Wendigo as well. But the reason to why, to my understanding, to why it's called Skinwalker Ranch is because in that area, you had the Ute tribe and the Navajo tribe. They were at war. One cursed the other. The land was completely cursed. And to this day, that's a potential reason why, at least allegedly, while you're see why you are seeing all of these crazy things, UFOs, cryptids, shadow people, poltergeists, and it's it's very haunting. People that have gone to Skinwalker Ranch with the few accounts that we have, especially during the Bigelow era, where they were doing scientific research on this location, there are alleged allegedly some scientists that have claimed that they saw a Bigfoot exiting mm -hmm. out of a portal. They saw dinosaurs. Wow. And when I had spoken to Brandon Fugel, who's also on my show, who's now the current owner of Skinwalker Ranch, he had mentioned, I invited some people from the Bigelow era and those before and those after to come onto the ranch. And they flat out denied it. They said, I am not going back. My experience there was so terrible. You cannot pay me to go back to that ranch. And I think that is saying something. While not a lot of people are telling their stories of what happened, the fact that they do not want to return is pretty mortifying. And just quickly, and I, I didn't mention this, but to become a skinwalker, according to the Navajo legend and the Ute legend, first off, the reason to why you want to become one usually is become a, a, a dark sorcerer, either a witch or a wizard. and they're not called wizards there, but you have to murder your family members, have it be your wife, your mother, your children. Yes, you have to do Jesus. something so terrible to, in order to acquire this new form of a skinwalker. And then from there, you're able to kill certain animals. You're able to put it in your backpack. You keep the skins. And then if you, if you just kill the wolf, you can put the wolf skin on and you turn into a wolf. So in this case, when the Shermans, which was um, kind of, where this story got started with Skinwalker Ranch, when Mr. Sherman had shot this, what he believed to be a dire wolf, this ginormous wolf, later on, when people were dissecting the stories, they believed it was a skinwalker in the sense where no matter how many times it was shot with a, with a gun or kicked or hit with the bat, which is uh, told in detail in a story, it didn't die. It didn't even flinch. It barely bled. If anything, it just walked away after attempting to kill hmm. one of the Sherman's cattle. And when I spoke to um, John Dover and I asked him, "How like is it possible to, to kill a skinwalker?" and he said, "Look, no bullet's going to kill it um, from from the from the ancient." myths and legends it's not possible if anything you have to find the you have to know the skinwalker's name his original name or her original name and, and say it to to cause some type of magical effect to where it dies or to somehow find certain bones and go from there so 
here's the thing though it wasn't taken so seriously i was told by navajo ranger john dover who is who who is retired law enforcement now told me that the tribal members are very careful whenever they go leaving any of their dna which is really fascinating they always tell their kin don't leave your hair out don't leave dirty clothes out if you're going to use the rashu outside make sure to bury it properly and things like this uh, don't leave your shoes out because the skinwalker can come take that dna and then attempt to recreate you which i think is probably the scariest part and like i said yeah yeah so all of this that i'm Mm. saying is is what has been relayed um to me from people right in the center of all this activity and research and so when i was first looking at skinwalker ranch i'm like well this is this is really really cool but then after speaking to more people i'm just like okay this is a little bit scary but i don't necessarily buy all of this i mean i'm not a witness so i'm kind of on the fence but when we're looking at skinwalker ranch and even bradshaw ranch in sedona arizona which is incredibly similar to skinwalker ranch i do want to mention skinwalker ranch is not the only place that is having all this oh, interesting activity. This is happening across the globe, but Skinwalker Ranch is getting that scientific attention. It's getting that media attention where people are becoming more interested in this. But this is happening across the globe from my research. But here's the thing. I am staying very neutral, but I definitely I definitely do want to know more. And I do want to be a witness, but from a safe distance. Yeah, no, I understand that. <clears throat> so would you would you not go down there? Oh, absolutely. I would. Okay. So, so not I would, such a safe I, w- I would make sure to bring snacks because you're not you when you're hungry, right? Maybe they're just really okay. upset because oh. they haven't eaten. <laughs> That's a very good point. What about other places? Like, um, I, I see you've spoken of, of Colaris in Brazil, a UFO flap in 1977. What's a UFO flap? So in the UFO field, a flap is a reoccurring sighting or encounter. And in this case, with... Calaris, Brazil. It's probably one of my favorite cases. And the reason to that is in Calaris, Brazil, 1977, this UFO flap or this occurrence was six months long. Every single night from 7 to 8 p.m., this small fishing town were not only seeing UFO craft, they were being terrorized by them. Now, in the years that I have done the research, it is so incredibly rare so incredibly rare to people for people to be actually hurt during ufo encounters and sightings yes sometimes there are some residual effects for those allegedly for those that are in contact with the craft that touch it things like this but for hundreds of people to have the same sighting and for hundreds of them to actually get hurt and were two died it's like not even in the one percentile from the research Mm. that I've done. Yeah, it's crazy. So here in 1977, there was this small town, Colares, and one night they saw this craft coming from the sky. Keep in mind, this was a this is a very religious Catholic town because in Brazil, the the main religion is um, Catholicism. So when they first saw this, they're like, oh, what is this? But then these craft were shining beams of light on these people. And the crazy thing about this is that in these beams of light, whenever it was touched by a person, 
they were paralyzed and then they had puncture wounds for women um, in the chest area, for men in the jugular area, but also in the oh thighs God. as well. So people were were so scared. They thought it was some type of demonic entity and they ended up calling it Chupa Chupa or Sucker Sucker. Which I've heard of Chupa what- Chupa. Yeah, exactly. Well, also, uh, you, you would say that if you're having a lollipop as well. But Sure. But uh, with this, they believed that their blood was being taken from them and taken by these entities. Now, when this was getting so extreme, people would not would not go out at night. They all these town folk would actually attempt to live in the same house with one another because they were so scared. But these beams of light were not only seen outside, but they were able to penetrate roofs and walls as well. And it was terrorizing the people. So nobody was safe. So what did the mayor do? Well, he calls the capital. He calls Brasilia, Brazil. And he says, look, I need military officials. Stat, my people are terrified. I don't know what to do. So the military comes in. People are expecting guns, weapons, you know, artillery, shields, whatever. Actually, what they brought, and this is recorded, is actually released by FOIA. This information is public. What they brought instead were papers, pencils, cameras, camcorders. No guns, nothing like that. And this scared the people even more this this small town that doesn't really know anything about ufos so for the next few months and keep in mind this was a six month flap happening every single night from 7 to 8 p.m and it was getting so extreme and there's only one clinic in this town and it was being filled with people so the military the military officials uh which was this operation was called Operacion Plato or Operation Saucer. And they went to the clinic and they said, look, Miss Doctor, you are going to tell everyone that they're having mass hysteria. Okay, you got it? You good? All right, cool. And at first, she didn't really believe what was going on. She, she thought that these people were really having mass hysteria. They were coming in. They were just hysterical. They were, they were scared until she had her own sighting where she saw a craft. She saw this beam of light and she said, this isn't mass hysteria. I encountered this. There is no way that's possible. But the story gets even crazier, Andrew, because mm. the the leader of this operation, Captain Urange Lima, and his name is a lot longer than that, but we're going to keep it really short. He also had encounters. Now, he did not tell his stories until 20 years later when he told UFO Magazine in Brazil exactly what happened to him. And he had mentioned not only did he see these craft, and keep in mind that his men were drawing the shape of the craft, they were they were really keeping detailed reports, which once again, it was released by FOIA, so you're able to catch get this information from the blackvault.com information is public and it's well accepted now and he had stated i saw the craft i saw the lights but one night when i was in bed i saw this huge beam of light and then behind me was a meter and a half tall entity hugging me from behind he was wearing a helmet he could i wasn't able to see his eyes he was wearing a gray type of suit not completely tight and he stated in his interview, Captain Urangelima, he said, 
he was attempting to communicate with me in kind of broken Portuguese, and it sounded very robotic, but he had stated, there's nothing to be scared of. I'm not here to hurt you. And then this entity left. As soon as Captain Orange gave his testimony to UFO magazine in 1997, a month or two later, he allegedly committed suicide. Hmm. Wow. And this, from my research, has 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 become a reoccurring theme. Some people that are pretty high up, they wait until they retire when they have nothing to lose. They tell their story to the public. A little while after, something happens and they are no longer able to tell their story. They are kept silent. Now, did he really commit suicide? Was it a murder? It is hard to say, but there has been some research where people that have spoken to those close to him, Captain Urange Lima, and stated that he was a very happy man. He was he was not ready to die anytime soon. If anything, it was a little bit fishy. But we do need to keep in mind that sometimes it is very difficult to tell when someone is suicidal. It's not always easy to sure. see. Sure, absolutely. We've only got a few minutes because this has just been so fascinating. We're going to have to try and get you back on again to discuss more because there's so much other stuff. I just wanted to point out Keza's great comment here. This lady's stories are scaring the bejesus from me. Uh, they are scary stories. Um, given we've only got a few minutes, a few minutes left, maybe you could. Uh, Talk us through just a little bit on hmm, shadow people and, and jinn. That sounds quite interesting. Absolutely. So when it comes to shadow people, this is a pretty normal thing that a lot of people go through. And when I was doing the research on shadow people and um, speaking to others about it, because this is a really fascinating topic, I remembered that I actually had a sighting my senior year in high school of a shadow person uh, when I was late one night and I was asleep and then I was paralyzed and I saw this entity it was pretty terrifying. I actually didn't remember that until somewhat recently. But when we're looking at shadow people, this is common throughout cultures, throughout the globe. It's not just one place, but this is a story that has been told and told again. People have had experiences with the hat man, which is a shadow entity that has a hat. That's why it's called the hat man, usually with the red glowing <laughs> eyes. You have the old hag, which is very similar. And then you have just literal shadow type entities that are coming into your room usually at night and they cause um, sleep paralysis and what that is is that your mind is awake but your body's completely frozen you can't move you can't scream you can barely wiggle mm. your fingers if anything you can just kind of move your eyes and regardless on if shadow people are real or not just putting that aside sleep paralysis is terrifying but a lot of people yeah. go through it sometimes i get it yeah sometimes it, sometimes it's just it's neurological it can it can be certain um triggers that happen through the day as well yeah but sometimes from some people's accounts that have done extensive research on shadow people believe it is a mechanism for these entities to potentially take control this is also simu similar with the demonic entities the incubus and the succubus which are mm -hmm. pretty scary and have been told since ancient times. It's even been in pretty famous paintings as well. But with shadow people, the reason to why I actually did the research on this in particular, actually my very, very first show that I did on Mysteries with the History, which is on my YouTube channel, was because I had a really good friend in my youth. Um, 
she was an orthodox jew her father was a just pure a purely science-minded man he was a um a neurosurgeon and her mother on the other side was a was a very spiritualist type woman who believed in in everything relating to anything spiritual so that you had these two polar opposites and this girl was in the middle but she was kind of more on the scientific standpoint all of us and she didn't really believe in what she was necessarily taught in school when she went to jewish school and uh, things like this and like demons and angels and ghosts She she didn't really care for that but she had confined in me in when i was when i was young between the ages of like eight to maybe 13 or 14 we were pretty good friends she had mentioned that every single night she would see this old type of hag in the corner of her room and it would terrorize her and from the Mm. research that i've done with shadow people people that have these encounters allegedly deal with depression deal with anxiety deal with eating disorders um and and there's a few other issues as well she had all of those things Mm. she had all of those things her entire life from her childhood until she went off to college to my understanding and i did lose contact with her um so i wasn't able to ask her more questions on this but from what i can remember from her youth that she was going through all of those things and this is kind of where the story gets pretty odd i only have a few minutes left i'll make it this really really quick Mm -hmm. but her mother again was more of a spiritualist she actually contacted someone that she believed could cleanse her daughter so she takes her to this house uh like an hour away from where they live and uh my friend she didn't want to enter this this woman's house this stranger woman's house not because Mm. you know she's scared of strangers but it's because she couldn't she wasn't able to from the stories that i heard from uh, her mother my mother and her as well and they had to actually do the cleansing outside of the house using singing bowls and, and um, sage and things like this. And I was told that my friend started screaming. She was like, this, this hurts so much. Wow. This is so painful. Why are you hurting me? And then she faints. She passes out. <sighs> mm-hmm. A few hours later, she wakes up and she's like, what happened? Where am I? And it's, it's a pretty traumatic story. Now, when I had asked her about that a little while after that incident, she didn't believe any of that happened. She doesn't believe in shadow people. She didn't believe in the old hag. She didn't believe in this, in, this encounter she had with uh, passing out and feeling pain. She's in denial. And that's kind of why I started my research um, was, was to understand her encounter and then, and then it took me down so many other rabbit holes. It's a really fascinating story. And actually, a lot of people go through it. They just don't talk about it. Yeah, that is really fascinating. And I'm so sorry we have to cut now. Um, but Christina, where do you want to send people? Oh, first off, Andrew, thank you so much for having me. You have a fantastic lineup today. Oh, my gosh. I love everyone oh, that you. you are interviewing today. And everyone can find me on my website at strangeparadigms.com there you can find literally all of my social media twitter youtube facebook instagram tiktok you name it it's all there that's probably the easiest place um, where you can find everything so strangeparadigms.com fantastic everybody go check that out support our wonderful guests loads of people were saying lovely things about you and the way you tell the stories and your research and uh, talents and everything so thank you so much christina and have a lovely day right back at you Bye. That was Christina, and I'm bringing on Pete. Pete, how you doing? Great. Thank you so much for having me. 
Uh, you're so welcome. So why don't you tell us a bit about your ch channel and stuff and your work? Well, I consider myself a master of mysteries and an antiquary of the arcane. I delve into everything Ooh. from the esoteric to the extraterrestrial, the spiritual to the supernatural, and all the mysteries that lie between. Do you have all those uh, that alliteration lined up? Because it would be pretty good to do it off the top of your head. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even remember some of those words. I think one or two I didn't even know. What was the first one with the A's? The arcane, the antiquary of the arcane. The antiquary of the. What does antiquary mean? Uh, like an antiquarian, someone who collects uh, antiques, if you will. I like that. I'm going to start talking with more literary flair. I think. There you go. Um, <laughs> tell me. So, 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 what does all that really mean? Do you, what do you look into? I look into everything from UFOs to ghosts uh, to cryptids to uh, you know more fringe theories that are not really acceptable in modern discourse anymore. But mm. you know, I delve into everything on the fringes. Yeah, you're on the right show then, aren't you, this one? Um, <laughs> let's get started with Thoth and his connections to Atlantis, because I thought Atlantis was made up. So what's the deal here? Oh, no, Atlantis was definitely real. I am a firm proponent that there was a great mother culture in ancient times that seeded uh -huh. colonies all over the planet. And I think this is why we see pyramids replete around the world. But, uh, but to get to Thoth, Thoth stands out among all the Egyptian gods. And we see parallels to Thoth in other religions as this great scribe of the gods. Now, it's in my estimation that Thoth was actually a refugee from Atlantis. And, and there is some, some text out there you can consult that would reaffirm this. The Thoth, the Atlantean uh, texts speak of Thoth's escape from the destruction of Atlantis and arriving in the land of Chem, which at that time was Egypt. And he was confronted by the Egyptians, but they astounded them with their science magic and then instilled a new culture upon these uh, barbarians as they were at the time. Hmm. So I guess we need some uh, introductory stuff, I guess a bit more on Atlantis, because I think obviously, obviously some people are very familiar with it, but I'm aware that some viewers won't be. Um, so Atlantis, you, you say, was real and was it an under, my understanding was it's underwater city. No, no. Atlantis was a continent. Atlantis was a continent that sat off the coast of Europe, somewhere past the Straits of Gibraltar. Oh. Atlantis was destroyed in a single day and night in some great conflagration that came from the sea, whether it was a tsunami or some kind of earthquake. Uh, Atlantis was also the home to high technology and occult magics. So there's a lot of accusations that whatever the Atlanteans were doing technological-wise or spiritually led to their destruction. But as far as the research shows, Atlantis was the most advanced civilization that's ever been seen on the Earth. And I believe in these time periods, uh, you know, before the Great Flood, that there were advanced technologies out there far beyond, we, you know, what we could imagine now. If we, if we look at the advancements that we've made in just the last hundred years as a species and consider the amount of time between the biblical fall of the Garden of Eden and the uh, flood of Noah, that's 1,665 years, and a lot can be accomplished in that time. Mm. Yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. So what kind? Of, how do you imagine Atlantis then, just with like electricity and uh, uh, the stuff we have today? Oh, uh, even far, farther advanced than we are today. UFOs advanced. Huh. But then why didn't that spread to the rest of the world? 
I, I think that they did spread to the rest of the world. I think they did spread colonization around the world uh, hmm. in, in a very real sense. I think, uh, you know, especially in Mesoamerica, we see some remnants of the Atlantean culture. Hmm. I think that you see evidence of the Atlantean culture off the Bimini Road. You know, there is uh, there are structures around the world, megalithic structures, that we are still mystified by the construction. And I think that there is some level of technology that had to be involved in creating things like the pyramids or Puma Punko or Baalbek uh, or Gobekli Tepe that we mm. just don't understand. Oh, fair enough. And Thoth is uh, an Egyptian god, but you think lived in Atlantis. I do believe that Thoth was an actual person at one point, much like Imhotep. Imhotep was the first architect of the pyramids. Later, he hmm. would be deified. So I think oh. the same thing happened with Thoth. I think what we had is this character who was very intelligent, who had knowledge beyond his capabilities, and then was later deified by the Egyptian people. Right. Like the saints, I suppose. They're sort of real historical figures, but then they're sort of made as if they're deities. Exactly interesting and and so what does this mean for us so it's just it just means we update our our folklore and and mythology and understanding of history i think our understanding of history is very skewed uh you know uh, mm. the the fact of the matter is that history has been rewritten over and over again by the victors so uh our true history is something i think is completely lost to us it's like the burning of alexandria the knowledge of the ancient mm -hmm. world completely lost in this one conflagration. You know, it's uh, uh, for, for some who value knowledge and, and understanding and learning, it's still a tragedy to have lost so much wisdom. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, that's that's a fascinating thought for us to think about. And, and in John Cleve Sims Jr., developer of the hollow earth model, what is the hollow earth model? Well, the hollow earth model, uh, it actually goes back centuries, but John Cleve Sims Jr. in the 1880s really fleshed it out by giving the idea of openings at the poles. So the belief is essentially that the interior of the earth is a hollow shell. And within this hollow shell is habitation. Uh, there's a great lore and mythology built up around this. It involves theosophy, the UFO phenomenon, uh, Admiral Byrd, uh, an Operation High Jump, some some operations by the U.S. government that went on in Antarctica after the Great Second War, you know. So uh, John Cleve Sims Jr. takes this theory, develops it, puts openings to the Hollow Earth at the poles, starts making globes and giving lectures, and he traveled throughout the country doing these lecture tours, trying to raise funds for an expedition to go to Antarctica and explore the hollow earth, firmly believing that they would find animal, vegetable resources and people down there. Uh, Andrew Jackson was also a, a light proponent of this theory at the time, but uh, uh, ultimately uh, Sims never found his funding and never performed his expedition. But his theory would live on and inspire other hollow earthers that would come down the pipe. And has anyone ever gone down and seen what's there? Well, according to the secret diary of Admiral Byrd, uh, he was a U.S. admiral 
who was sent down to Antarctica to perform military operations shortly after the Second World War. Uh, in his secret diary, which I've never really been able to corroborate, they talk of his ship being landed by remote control and him encountering denizens of the hollow earth, actually making contact with them. Hmm. Uh, he said the opening was so big into the hollow earth that his plane just flew into it without any problem. Like it was massive, thousands of miles long. Wow. And there are some that still believe Antarctica is the easiest access to the hollow earth, but there are other entrances around the world. According to some mammoth cave in Kentucky, the Nahani Valley in California, in Canada, the, uh, the mm -hmm. pyramids in Giza. And where do you stand on this belief? I believe the hollow earth is a fun theory. I really mm -hmm. enjoy it, uh, especially for the rich mythology that's built up around it. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, if the Earth was hollow, that would mean that the other planets were hollow too. So, yeah, uh, I don't think well, the they could be. They, they very well could <laughs> be. I mean, there are some speculations yeah. that the Moon could be hollow as well. I think it's an interesting point you raised there because I think a lot of maybe skeptics might mock um, channels such as yours or, or the previous guest. Uh, but often I think you are talking about things where you're not saying this is definitely how it is. It's just this is a fun thing to think about. And, and it really is, isn't it? I, I love the idea of like another world inside our own one and you find all these different kinds of animals and weird things. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I say on my channel, I don't believe in 85% of the topics I present. It's the 15% I do believe in that's bananas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I understand, <laughs> I understand that. And, and then the other ones you just leave up to, you know, it's up to the viewers, isn't it? It's up to people Absolutely. to think about. And, you know, um, science fiction is wonderful. I love, I love all that stuff as well. And who knows what's inside our, well, apparently it's lots of really hot stuff um, and you, you die immediately. But I think scientists don't even know now. They don't know what's, there's, there are parts inside the earth. I think it's like they know more about, the moon than they do about like what's inside in the core uh and, and even what's at the bottom of some of our oceans so it's still oh, open to mystery yeah open speculation isn't it oh the world is still full of mystery i firmly believe that you know a, a lot has been dispelled over the last 20 years i think you know with the advancement of the internet and people becoming more educated a lot of the old mysteries have been dispelled you don't really hear people talk about the Bermuda triangle the way they did 20 years ago but oh, yeah the world is still full of mystery. There's a lot of strange stuff out there, bizarre phenomenon, weird encounters, you know, enough of it to present it with a, an open mind for the mm -hmm. viewer to like, just evaluate for their own decision. Like, uh, like um, Sanat Kumara King? King of the Hollow Earth, Sanat Kumara, yes. So, uh, and, and that's one of the oh, yeah. part of the fascinating mythology of the Hollow Earth. So in the hollow earth, there's supposedly a crystalline city that stood for a million years. And the ruler of this city is Sanat Kumara, the king of the world. This comes to us from theosophy, which was developed by Helena P. Blavatsky herself, a fascinating figure who brought Eastern mysticism into the Western world uh, for the first time. She really was fundamental in the Western esoteric tradition. And uh, through her work, developed theosophy. And theosophy has an understanding of what they call the ascended masters. These are spiritual beings that were human, but through their practice, through their rituals, through their understanding of the spiritual world, have ascended beyond mere mortal concerns. 
Sanat Kumara being one of these creatures. Uh, Sanat Kumara is uh, said to be uh, prophesized, at least, that when things on the surface world become too bad, he and his armies will ride out of the hollow earth to restore order. So there are kind of this, uh, almost this messianic ideas uh, in, involved with Sanat Kumara. But that's not really that strange for a lot of this stuff. I even feel with the UFO phenomenon that it plays to our hopes and our fears. You know, we fear the outsider, we fear the invader. But at the same time, there's that, that sliver of hope that if extraterrestrials would arrive, they would present us with technology to end poverty and hunger and war on our own planet. Right, right. Yeah, I get what you're saying about the fears and hopes as well, because it's that. I mean, do you worry about that a little bit sometimes? The confirmation bias that comes from wanting to believe uh, in some of these things. You know, I I would have many years ago, but I've been at this for such a long time now that you know some of the things I did believe uh, have kind of fallen by the wayside. I've accepted new ideas over time, so it's constantly changing. I understand that it is I definitely find it myself I have so much confirmation bias about pretty much everything I'm constantly changing what I believe and I realize that the things I believe coincide with the things I want to believe that would make me happier and I'd certainly be happier to just know there's like a weird civilization in the hollow earth or that there are UFOs out there and it's really interesting and there's other things and uh, more life out there you know that stuff would uh Bring me some. I mean, what, what is the thing that you've studied that you think is the most likely to, to be true and would blow your mind? Oh, well, that's a good one. Uh, I think the UFO phenomenon is, is, is ripe for that kind of attention. You know, 1947, they see some saucers over Mount Rainier, and that kind of mm -hmm. sparks the whole thing. Ever, ever since that, people have been seeing UFOs and lights in the sky for decades. Now, why we associate the lights in the sky with extraterrestrial beams, that's a big jump. I don't know how that was made, but that's what happened. So for 75 years now, we've associated lights in the sky with aliens, but they don't necessarily have to come from outer space. They could be from the hollow earth. You know, they could be ultra terrestrials, which is something that I talk about on my channel as well. These, these creatures that might be native to earth but are not necessarily the kind of life forms we would understand or could be able to quantify through science. Yeah, I went actually in a place called Capilla del Monte in Argentina. I went hunting for UFOs with some um, professional UFO hunter people. And um, they take people on like walks to, to find um, UFOs. And they believe in uh, sort of not UFOs, but creatures like you say from in the, in the earth. Uh, and they say they are from the fifth dimension um, and they're called Urks, mm. but I don't know what, I can't remember what the translate because that's the Spanish. Urks uh, stands for something like extraterrestres, something, something. But is that the kind of thing that you've come across? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, and, and, and to take it almost into the realm of folklore, I believe that folklore has inspired uh, a lot of these creatures uh, or has inspired the descriptions of a lot of these creatures, but it also validates them. You know, uh, going through old, uh, like, uh, newspaper clippings, which is something I tend to do for hours, I have found many reports pre-1950, I mean, even pre-1900s, of what were called wild man encounters. And these wild man encounters would become Bigfoot stories over the years. So it's a, it's a matter of semantics, whereas the name changed over time, 
but people were still experiencing the phenomenon. You know, it's like the pre-1947 UFO sightings, pre-Roswell, anything like that. That, I think, really shores up the UFO phenomenon. There was the phantom airship flap in the 1880s. This was pre-flight. This was pre-Wright Brothers. So what were people seeing in the sky? Or the 1886 Missouri River UFO crash. Something went down in the Missouri River in the 1880s that was never recovered, but Mm. still fit the description of a UFO. So there was something out there flying around. And I think that, for me, the UFO phenomenon has a lot of teeth. Hmm. It's interesting. And that's funny because Wild Man, uh, I believe, it, it was the name of Sean's best friend who, who passed away. So it feels like a, a tribute from beyond to to him. So that um, I'd never heard of the Wild Man phenomenon um, in that sense. Um, tell me about Lemuria. Lemuria. Lemuria was another great continent that existed in the Pacific Ocean. Now, Lemuria mm. is very similar to Atlantis, and in a lot of ways, they rivaled each other. Uh, another great civilization that existed on this continent. But Lemuria predates Atlantis. And Lemuria also ties into the aforementioned theosophy I spoke about in the work of Helena P. Blavatsky. She really fleshed out the idea of Lemuria and the root races of mankind, where the Lemurians were not necessarily human. They had humongous heads with enormous brains, and they reproduced by budding like plants. So they weren't people at this point yet a really strange evolution of bizarre creatures into human life, according to Blavatsky's work. Wow. That's really interesting. And so Lemuria, um, is, is that, is that connected to the hollow earth theory then? Well, the Lemurians, uh, some of them escape the destruction of their continent and they live in a secret underground city called Telos, underneath Mount Shasta. Huh. That's funny. Oh, somebody in the comments was asking about Man- Mount Shasta, actually, weren't, weren't they? So, yeah, what, what is Mount Shasta? Oh, Mount Shasta in California has long yeah. been considered a very spiritual location. There's been UFO oh. sightings, Bigfoot sightings. Uh, there's legends and rumor that surround it going back to the Native American times. So Mount Shasta, a very spiritual place. Some of them claim to have met the Ascended Master, the immortal Count St. Germain, on Mount Shasta. And uh, he's one of these Blavatsky types who ascended, you know, spiritually and, and became immortal. Wow. Okay, that's interesting. It's funny that the, um, about Telos, because Telos, or that's in uh, Argentinian Spanish, that's the name of motels where people go for um, pay-per-hour sex. Oh, <laughs> So something to think about, you know, be there careful talking to an Argentinian person about that because they might laugh or something. What about, um, and, and uh, if anyone's got, by the way, like questions you want to ask, uh, put them in and put a cue at the beginning because it helped me see it. But tell me a little bit now about the hollow earth city of Agartha. Did we talk about that already? I can't remember. Now. Just a touch. Well, Agartha hmm. is the capital of the hollow earth. This is the great kingdom of Agartha, a crystalline city that stood for millions of years. So it's been down there forever. And then this is populated by, of course, hollow earth people, uh, Mm -hmm. prehistoric animals. You're going to have woolly mammoth down there. You probably got some saber tooth tigers, you know, these kind of uh, larger predators and prey from the ice age eras. But, uh, but yeah, Agartha is the capital city. That is really, that's, that's the heart of the hollow earth right there. Man, I wish I had like, 
pictures of all these things you know i wish so i could like I. be there and see wouldn't that be cool hey when on your like community so on youtube and that do you get a lot of really good back and forth with people do other are, are there a lot of people who are really passionate and do you get some people who are skeptics and are sort of having a go at you well generally uh you know what i ask my audience is for just the hour that we're together to believe everything you know, it's it's just an exercise in how much can we entertain mentally without really having to accept it. So yeah. it, it's more of a presentation of the material for the evaluation of the viewer rather than me trying to convince anybody to believe uh, anything or debunk. I'm not a, I'm I'm neither of those things. I'm, I'm not trying to convince nor debunk. Sure. I'm just presenting information from my research. For, uh, for enjoyment and entertainment. These, these are the kind of things that I grew up fascinated by. You know, in my experience, it was shows like In Search Of or Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, Sightings, uh, you know, and, uh, and books like uh, Time Life's Mysteries of the Unknown. Those kind of things really wrote me into this world as a young man. And sure, that research has sure. continued for decades now. Got a question from Tina Tomasevsky. Uh, Andrew, please ask him about Antarctica. What about Antarctica? Antarctica is a, <laughs> a fun one. I've done a lot of videos okay. on Antarctica. There was a great story came out of Antarctica a few years back, recording, uh, uh, according to some, about an object called the Ark of Gabriel. Now, apparently, the Ark of Gabriel was discovered in Saudi Arabia and was an object of great power, killing the people who discovered it through some kind of expulsion of energy. Hmm. So then the Saudis get in touch with the Russian government to move this object. They're going to take it to Antarctica. But before they do, they, uh, there's a meeting between the Russian patriarch of their church, uh, Patriarch Kirill, and Pope Francis in Havana, Cuba, where they exchange uh, a gift. And this gift was a parchment that contained an ancient ritual that was said to needed to be performed over this Ark of Gabriel. So the Russians take the Kirill, uh, the patriarch, they take the Ark and they take a boat. They stop off in South Africa for a little bit to refuel. Then they head off to Antarctica where this ritual is performed over the Ark of Gabriel. And then it's taken deep into the interior of the continent to be disposed of. Uh, this story was huge at the time, uh, about five years ago when this came out. I mean, I was putting up Antarctica videos all the time, and they were just doing gangbusters. People were loving it. But uh, mm. there's a lot of quiet on the Antarctica front these days. Uh, you know, mm. you know, we see stories about the ice shelf or, you know, other these type of environmental concerns. But as far as the mystery, the mystery surrounding Antarctica, mum's Nothing. the word the last couple of years. Wow. Well, speaking of Antarctica, where do you stand on uh, flat earth theory? I don't believe in the flat earth. I lean towards the hollow because it's more fun. It's got, it's got a richer yeah. tradition. It's, there's, there's more funny characters, you know. Uh, but uh, the flat earth, uh, I, I, it, I don't care if people want to believe in it. I just don't. Yeah, people get quite angry about it if you don't believe they in it. They very much do. Hmm. And I think it's like a, the system, it's not really flat. It's like flat, but with a dome on top of it, right? Right, right. There's, well, the, the firmament. Yeah, oh, that's what, is what that they what say that we can't get through to, to launch our rockets into space. Mm. 
Well, McCaw67 asks, can we visit Antarctica? And I think, I mean, there seems to be a lot of evidence that we can. People go there quite often, right? There is tourism to Antarctica, but you can't necessarily visit the interior of the continent. They usually take you down to Deception Island. You take some pictures with penguins, then you get back on the boat and leave. So it's not Mm -hmm. like you can really explore Antarctica uh, the way many people would like to. And, And, you know, the the funding you would need to do it right would be astronomical to begin with. So there's not a lot of impetus for people to want to go to the harshest climate on the world, spend millions of dollars to come away empty handed. Bob Bob Dennison says uh, Heaven's Gate. Do you look into things like cults like Heaven's Gate? I really don't steer into cults too much. Uh, they, They usually have pretty unhappy endings. I like to be pretty positive and upbeat when these kind of topics come up. So I stay away from true crime and I do stay away Mm. from cults for the most part. Unless there's a supernatural element to the true crime, like the hex murders of 1928, then, you know, I think you'd be, you'd be, do you know about heaven's gate? Cause that seemed, that could be up your street. Cause it was all about going to, you know, be with an alien civilization or something. Well, yeah, with heaven's gate, they were waiting for the hail bop comet to take their souls away to a new planet. You know, and uh, it's a real shame that they, uh, you know, they got so caught up in it. They took their own lives believing in this, uh, you know, ideology that they had developed. So, you know, it's a a really kind of sad story. And and that's another reason why I don't really address stuff like missing 411 too much, because I also find that kind of depressing. But, uh, yeah, I I tend to to steer more into the, uh, the fun side of things, the upbeat side of things. Yeah, yeah. I think they took it, as you say, they took it too far. It's one thing to sort of have fun with it and consider things and the other, another thing to really live your life by some of these things. And then, you know, they had a very horrible demise. Uh, Pete, where can people go and get your YouTube channel and everything? Oh, you can find me right here on YouTube at The Creepy Little Book. Uh, I'm also on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can uh, download the podcast on Spotify. Uh, and I believe the link is right down there in the description of this video. So uh, easy mm-hmm. peasy. That's right. Why book? What a creepy little book. Well, uh, as a matter of fact, I was a bartender many years ago. And, uh, and a hmm. chef uh, who was a friend of mine uh, happened to notice me jotting down ideas for stories in my little black notebook. Oh. And he said to me, hey, you better not be writing about me in your uh, creepy little book. So this is the actual creepy <laughs> little book that inspired the title. It's just a little journal I carry around to jot down ideas for shows or uh, topics I want to research. That's a great origin story. I like that. Pete, thank Thanks. you so much for coming on. You're absolutely brilliant. And, and have a lovely day. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great time. Have a great night. You're very welcome. And that was Pete, ladies and gentlemen. I am Andrew Gold. You can now see my little flowers there. My, my girlfriend got me flowers because I've been away. And, uh, and, now, and now I've got flowers. Isn't that lo- lovely of her? Um, maybe I, I should always have flowers. Doesn't it brighten up the thing? I haven't got my lamps on right now. I need to turn them on. Anyway, that was, that was part of the show. We're going to move over to Patreon now for those of you who are able to do so. Uh, so please come join us there in 10 minutes. Um, I've been... Andrew Gold from the On the Edge with Andrew Gold podcast. Stephen Knight, thank you so much to him, our co-host. Uh, he's the Knight Tube on on YouTube. You'll find him there. Thank you to producer Ash Meikle, who does or doesn't exist. Thank you to the lovely Sean Atwood for letting us 
for trusting us with his platform while he is away. And lastly, and most importantly, nah, it doesn't matter that much. No, it does matter. Thank you to all of you guys for watching, commenting, joining in with the show, sometimes defending the hosts from rogue villains. I see it all while I'm interviewing. I see what's happening and what's going on. So thank you. I appreciate it very much. At the same time, people are free to criticize as much as they want. It's water off a duck's back these days, you know, when you've done YouTube long enough. Um, so it's all good. And yeah, we'll see you on Patreon in a bit. And otherwise, next week on At Word Unleashed. And I think Sean will probably be back for that. Hello. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, things in the shallow earth, hollow earth, people in hollow earth. Hello to, to you all. Um, how was the YouTube? It was good, wasn't it? I had a good time there. And it was great with Stephen. I love doing it with him. Love doing it with Sean as well. Don't get jealous. I know Sean's probably watching being all, all jealous. Um, and I'm going to get our first guest. It's Scott Walter. And just do forgive me for any slowness here. I'm not typically in charge of this. But when one is away, needs must. Now, I believe Scott is just under Scott. I might just be inviting somebody called Scott who isn't Scott. So <laughs> let's let's see if I... Let's, attendee not li oh, attendee is not live. Okay, so Scott, it's saying you're not live. So I will hold tight until Ash and or Sean can direct me. As for live people, I'm looking down there. Oh, there is Scott live. Okay. So I've just invited him. I'm sure he will be getting some sort of thing, testing his camera and audio as we speak. Um, how are you guys doing? Tell me in the in the thing. Tell us, say hi. Hello, Scott. Hello. How's it going? Can you can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you. All right. You sound like you're you're not British. Uh, I am not British, although I've been to been to Britain many times and I've enjoyed it. Uh, the accent just didn't catch on. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you talking to us from today? Well, today I'm in Denver because I'm going to be doing a little um, shooting for a new television program. I'll be a guest on uh, a friend of mine's uh, program, and we're going to be talking about Templars, we're going to be talking about the founding fathers and uh, how that cool. connects. Oh, really cool! So I suppose we should probably do that today. I mean, tell us a bit about your uh, your background and how you got into the whole Templar and all the all the the law around it. Right. Well, it began about twenty two years ago. <clears throat> I run a materials forensic laboratory in Saint Paul, Minnesota, called American Petrographic Services, and the typical thing we do is look at primarily concrete that fails, cracks, uh, gets exposed to fire, low strength, that kind of thing. But we also look at aggregates and rock. And in 2000, year 2000, an artifact called the Kensington Runestone, which is a high, I didn't know this at the time. I knew nothing about it at the time, but it's highly controversial. And I was asked to perform a forensic study to try to determine the age of the weathering of the inscription. And I did that by comparing the weathering of Revolutionary War era tombstones. And I concluded that it was, um, it was old and that it must be authentic. And that's when all the trouble started. <laughs> huh. So 
So that led to uh, a series of events that led me down the road to trying to determine who carved it, uh, where they came from, and why did they come to the center of North America back in 1362, which is the date on the stone. That's what led me to the Templars. Interesting. And just for those who don't know, who are the, the Knights Templar or the Templars? <laughs> Well, the Knights Templar that everybody typically knows about was a military monastic order that was a part of the Cistercian Order, a very successful uh, monastic order that started around the year um, 1100 and actually continues to this day, the Cistercians. But the Templars were founded a couple decades after that in Jerusalem. And they lasted until 1307. They became immensely wealthy, very powerful. They're known for protecting pilgrims traveling to the Holy Land uh, during the time of the Crusades. But there was a lot more going on than that. Eventually, the Roman Catholic Church and the King of France decided that they wanted to take their wealth, take away their power. So they suppressed the order in 1307. And the history books tell us that they disappeared and that was the end of it. But the truth of the matter is that was really just the beginning of the next chapter of, uh, of the Templar ideology. And it continues to this day. I've got a question from Agent Orange. Might be jumping the gun a bit, but why would Freemasons or anyone in such an organization need a personal assistant from Air Force? Do you know what that's referring to? I don't. Uh, well, then could... Um, yeah, just ask again, Agent Orange, and just could you make it a bit more more specific, and we'll get back to that uh, later. Okay. What what do you what do you, what do you really mean, Agent Orange? Um, so tell me, what was their purpose in coming over to the U.S.? Well, they um, they came over here for uh, well, let's put it this way: the ideology came back to North America because there have been other people that came here long before the Templars did, even before the Vikings. Uh, around the year 1000. I mean, the Phoenicians were sailing around the world uh, going back um, two to three to 4,000 years ago. <clears throat> you had the Celts that came here. You had Hebrews that came here. There's all kinds of evidence on this content, on this continent that tells us that many people came here. But at the time that the Templars came, uh, they wanted to escape persecution from the Roman church and from the monarchies of Europe, specifically the, the king of France in this case. And um, they wanted to live on a continent where they could um, be free to practice whatever religion they want and have personal freedoms. Now, one of the things that me, many people do not understand is that there were millions of people living here back at the time the Templars came over. Those are the indigenous people. The indigenous people who I am quite uh, closely connected to in certain parts of the country practice a form of Freemasonry that we practice today. I am a Freemason and the Templars practiced during their time. So when they came over there, uh, starting in the uh, late 12th century, they developed a deep spiritual bond through ritual and intermarriage with the indigenous people. And once you make good with them, and they become, as they have told me, uh, their blood brothers. Uh, that's why they were able to operate on this continent so successfully. But the problem is the Roman Catholic Church, which has undue influence 
um, in this world to this day does not want this story to come out. They do not want this narrative to be told. This is the reason why things like the Runestone, the Newport Tower, there's a myriad of artifacts and sites on this continent that have been declared fake uh, and pushed into the shadows because there's a narrative that they want to control and uh, they're asserting themselves now in our country and we're seeing it with a lot of this far-right extremism uh, that's 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 a problem. So part of the reason why I'm so vocal about this, you know, this story is because it goes back to the experience of the Templars and their time over here, setting the table for someday that eventually would be that moment of truth we now call the Revolutionary War, where we fought a war against a monarchy. I'm sorry to say it was <laughs> it was over where you live, but. Um, uh, they were defeated. And so our founding fathers were pretty much all Freemasons. They were also Knights Templar. They just didn't tell anyone back at the time. They embraced this ideology of Templarism uh, called monotheistic dualism. And this was the ideology of believing in a single deity that had dualistic aspects that keep things in balance. And this was um, at odds with the Roman Catholic Church. And they hid this ideology from the church for 200 years. But when 1307 came, they say it was all about money. Money was part of it. But ideology is the reason that you burn somebody. It's because you're pissed. And that's when the church realized what they were really doing and what they were really believed in. Hmm. And did these people leave anything behind? What kinds of things, what kind of evidence, you know, other examples do we have? Well, if you look up the Kensington Runestone and the research, I've written four books on this subject matter. Uh, one is a 574-page book called the Kensington Runestone, Compelling New Evidence. I wrote it with a linguist, um, hmm. and we discussed every aspect of the stone. And remember, I do material forensics. I do investigations. Uh, for a living. So I, I know the process. And it's about gathering evidence that has to all fit. Otherwise, if you have a piece of data hanging out there that doesn't fit, you're not there. Everything mm -hmm. fits with the runestone. We have the Spirit Pond runestones. We have the Bat Creek Stone. We have the Tucson Lead Artifacts. We have the Newport Tower. We have the New Hampshire Mystery Stone. Um, we've got the... the um, Overton uh, inscription up in Nova Scotia. We've got the Haystack inscription in Newfoundland. I mean, the list goes on and on. And all of them have been dismissed as if there was a uh, almost three century long um, hoax going on huh. by a group of people that nobody can identify. And it's, it's really insane. Um, the latest thing that I looked at, I was just in Canada at the, uh, uh, the Canadian Museum in Ottawa, and a small carving of a wooden monk it wearing a tunic with an equilateral cross on its chest was dug up uh, during an archaeological excavation in 1932 up in Baffin Island. Uh, it was a Native American site, and this little figure dates to 1300. I mean, who else could it be? <laughs> I mean, give me a break. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's, I still don't quite understand why it's being suppressed because of the Catholic Church. Well, I'll, I'll tell you why. Because these people that were the Knights Templar were the bloodline descendants 
of Jesus and Mary Magdalene and people that were part of their order, their sect of the Essene. And of course, their bloodline goes back even farther to Egypt and beyond. And the problem is, is that if this story is fleshed out, if the rune stone is accepted as a legitimate artifact, what it does is it triggers a series of dominoes to fall that go to inconvenient places for the Roman Catholic Church. Have you ever heard of the Telpiat tomb? No. Brother, you got to look this one up. Uh, How do you spell the, that? T-A-L-P-I-O-T. Telpiat tomb. It'll come right up. It was discovered in 1980, and it was a tomb found in southern Jerusalem, the East Telpiat neighborhood. Inside, they found 10 ossuaries inscribed with names in Aramaic and one in Greek. Are you looking at it now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you see what I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely. One of the ossuaries says the name is Jesus, son of Joseph. Another one in Aramaic says James, uh, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Another one says Maria. Another one says Matthew. Another one says Joseph. Another one says Judah, son of Jesus. And the one that's carved in Greek says Mary Emne, Mary Emne Lamara, which is a title of honor as in Lord, Master, or Queen. And uh, wow. Mary Emne is a pet name for only Mary Magdalene found in the Acts of Philip. Now, you haven't heard about this. I find that to be incredible. This was worldwide news back in 1980. But guess what? It's been suppressed. This is one of those inconvenient stories that the church doesn't want people to know that directly ties to the runestone and the activities that went on in North America. Because what the Templars did, was starting in the 14th century, and probably before that, we only have records uh, starting in the 14th century, that they brought treasures, that they rounded up in Jerusalem in that area and the surrounding area. They, they weren't defeated uh, by Saladin. It was an organized withdrawal because they were done. And their plan all along was to bring those treasures, hide them over here in North America for someday. And someday came in 1776. And that's the story. Um, and it's, it's, it's one that uh, a lot of people have a vested interest in not coming out. Now, the more you dig into this, the more you'll see that it makes sense. And again, as a, a forensic investigator, a person that does mm -hmm. investigations for a living, this story all fits. And you know, you know that old saying, the truth eventually bubbles to the surface and it's coming out now. Wow. I mean, Ray J asks in the audience, just, is it just a coincidence that the guy who found the stone with Scandinavian markings was Scandinavian also? No, it's not a coincidence at all. In fact, that's not evidence of anything. Uh, Olaf Ullman was a Swedish immigrant farmer in the latitude that he came from uh, in the area that he settled in, like a lot of Norwegians and, and uh, Swedes in Minnesota. Um, settled in that area um yeah that's interesting but it's not evidence of anything hmm. i love the minnesota accent it's one of my favorite accents i love that no, film Fargo. you're the one with the accent <laughs> <laughs> no i've got no accent i'm just devoid of accents but you guys are like you know that fargo accent i love that oh yeah that's a great movie in fact 
One of the guys yeah. that started that movie is a good friend of mine, Peter Stormare. You remember the two guys, the two bad guys? Yeah, the yeah, one yeah. guy put his, the other guy in the wood chipper? Yeah. That was Peter who put uh, Stephen Buscemi in the wood chipper. Wow. Oh, he's, yeah. the, he's the actor. He's the actor, yeah. Actually, I, I filmed a series with him a few years ago called Secrets of the Viking Stone, and it was all about the Kensington Runestone. When he was filming the movie Fargo in Minnesota, he made a trip up to Alexandria. It's about two hours uh, north of the Twin Cities to a small museum that houses the artifact. And that was about almost 30 years ago. And he he said that one day he was going to come back and do something on that artifact. And he did. And I, I appeared in, I think, 10 of 12 episodes. And we had a great wow. time. He's a wonderful guy. Oh, that's cool. He was in Armageddon as well. Yeah, yeah. He's been in a bunch of movies. Um, he's... Um, uh, he's he's kind of a big deal, but he's a very down to earth guy, very passionate, and he's very Swedish. So that there was a connection to uh, you know to the runestone there as well. It's interesting. Um, did, we, did we discuss the Cremona document and the Sinclair Wemyss journals? Yeah, yeah. We did, well, we did. these are documents that came to me many years ago um, while I was well. One of them came to me, the journals came to me when I was doing the uh, show America on Earth. Um, I was contacted by uh, the person that has the Cremona document uh, back in 2006 initially, and we've been working together ever since. But these documents chronicle the story that I've been working on, uh, starting with the runestone for a long time. And in fact, the, the journals um, detail numerous trips by the, by the Templars of the Scottish Templars at that time um, over a period of uh, about 500 years. And, you know, think about it like this, okay? Just, just step back for a sec. I mean, we finally in the early 1960s accepted the fact that the Vikings came here <clears throat> to North America from Scandinavia, uh, probably ending about the year 1000, but they were definitely here. Nobody questions that. But the current historical narrative is, is that nothing happened for five centuries until Chris, I call him Chris, Columbus, you know, that guy that never set foot on the continent we now call America, that already had millions of people living here. I mean, think about that. From that time period for 500 years, nothing happened? Really? <laughs> Does that even pass the smell test? No, it doesn't. And in fact, that's not what happened. They were coming over here all the time. They just kept their mouth shut and didn't tell anyone. But I will tell you this. I have been in uh, the Medewin sweats. The Medewin is the secret society of the Algonquin nations to the north. Mm -hmm. And I earned the right to ask my questions. And when I did, the medicine man said, Scott, what do you want to ask me? And I said, I want to ask you about the Templars. And he said, oh. You mean our blood brothers? And it went really well after that. And all I can tell you is the natives know all about the Templars here. And it just makes me wonder, why did nobody ever ask them about this before? To me, it was self-evident. If they were here, who would know? They would, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And part of the problem is, frankly, and I'm just going to call it for what it is, that little genocide episode that was fueled largely by the Roman Catholic Church, where they um, killed the natives, right? Yeah, um, yeah. That didn't exactly build any goodwill. But 
if you reach out to them in a sincere way, as I have, you'd be surprised what you get back. And boy, wow, they know and they know about the people that came before the Templars were <laughs> they were the Johnny come lately's. Wow. Did you say Columbus never set foot on, on America? On what we call the United States of America. He set, he set foot in the Caribbean, and he did, on his fourth trip over here, uh, set foot on Panama. But he never set foot in Florida, Texas, anywhere that we now call the United States. And he's the one that was given credit for discovering America? I, <laughs> no, no. He was the last one here. <clears throat> I, su I suppose they, that people mean America is in the continent. And as in, well, a lot of people think of North America, right? So you yeah. could give him credit for coming to the Caribbean and actually setting foot in what is now Central America, but, but that's about it. Hmm. But he knew you know, where he in, was going. He was using old <laughs> Templar maps, for God's sakes. In South America, they, they call it just, they, they learn about it as one continent, just America. They don't say North right. or South America. So for them, right. I suppose they, it's... That's, that's, yeah, yeah, the indigenous people call it Turtle Island. So oh, it's all one why? continent. Yeah. <clears throat> Turtle Island. Why Turtle Island? Well, there's a reason for it. It's a long story and it's a beautiful story, but um, um, mm. that's how it's viewed from, a, from above. So right, right. <clears throat> and that gets into a whole nother thing that we don't have time for today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what we do have time for controversial artifacts and sites at locations such as America Stonehenge. I didn't know there was an American Stonehenge and Newport Tower that appear to be pre-Columbian and support the Templars in American narrative. Yes. Well, the, uh, <laughs> the Amer America Stonehenge is a fascinating site and, and we'll be going there on the tour that's coming up. And um, I've been there. We filmed an episode of our show and we actually use some archaeoastronomy science. I think a lot of people don't understand that astronomy is a hard science discipline. And some of the standing stone, it's basically uh, an ancient calendar site. It's just like Stonehenge in England. It's just that the, the stones aren't quite as big, although there mm -hmm. are some massive slabs uh, that are part of some of the stone structures that are there. But there are standing stones that mark out, you know, the solstices, the equinoxes, the cross-quarter days, all kinds of complicated astronomical alignments. But the problem is, is that they're not perfect right now. And actually, by using these archaeoastronomy uh, programs, we've been able to determine that when they were perfect was about 3,500 to 4,000 years ago. And we think that the people that are most likely associated with having originally constructed it, I'm sure that there have been people that have added on to it um, since, but probably the Phoenicians were the ones that uh, originally built this site. And I'll tell you what, it's amazing when you go there and you see what has been uh, built there and they've done C14 testing um, they've got all kinds of uh, crazy dates and some more modern dates that actually correspond to the time the Templars were here. And we've talked to the indigenous people in the community and they say the place is haunted. They said, we didn't build that. They told me that to my face more than once. So if not them and it's not colonial, who did it? Aliens. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh because... They... 
Maybe. No, you know, I'm I'm only an hour's drive from um, Stonehenge, so I've I've passed it quite a few times just just driving and stuff. It's really quite quite something. And that was thousands of years ago. Just, that was yes. I think two and a half, three thousand, was it? Oh, more than that. It's gonna. You know what's happening now is these megalithic oh. sites around the world. Uh, new testing and and uh, new investigations are finding that they're much older than we thought. I think the number right now is closer to about five thousand before present. And, and I oh yeah, and there's all kinds of uh, earthen structures that go for literally miles around Stonehenge. And what I find fascinating about Stonehenge is the inner stones, the blue stones. They're not mm -hmm. local to that area. They came from like over five hundred miles away. How did they get Wales. there 500 years ago or 5,000 years ago? Aliens? Yeah. <laughs> aliens, definitely aliens. I think Back what was they must have used. What, what do they think they did? It, they came from Wales, the rocks, I think. Right. That's my understanding. Yeah. Well, you know, I, 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 you got to remember something when you're building something, a structure like this. You know, it's not like we go and watch a construction site today where these guys are working. They get off at, you know, five o'clock and they show up at, you know, seven in the morning. This is something that's spiritual to them. It's 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 sacred. It's very important. And so mm -hmm. when you appeal to somebody on a spiritual level, um, they will go to extraordinary lengths to achieve whatever goal they're trying to achieve. Maybe uh, this is part of their um, you know, search for salvation. So they're going to do whatever it takes to make this happen. And there have been a lot of uh, theories discussed that these stones were float somehow floated over on rafts or boats. Others said that they were um, rolled by um, uh, on logs. Um, you know, who knows? Um, the bottom line is, is they they worked their fanny off to get them there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they got and they got them there and they erected them. And, you know, when you look closely at some of the larger stones, they actually have little knobs that stick on the top and where stones were to be set on top that had little recesses, almost like, you know, like Legos. So mm -hmm. there was a lot more that went into it than I think people realize to build Stonehenge and, and other sites that we find over here in North America as well that clearly are European in origin or people that, that were not indigenous here because they, they said we didn't build them. I won't tell you what um, fanny and knob means in British English because it's uh, not the same. <laughs> not... Did I did I say something I shouldn't have said? <laughs> oh, no. You said something inadvertently funny when they were working their fannies off because for, for us, fanny is the, the front part. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, my bad. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, it's just funny. Um, hey, so what? There. <laughs> oh, it yeah, is the, quite the, funny. The, the flag of the uh, someone's talking about the reverse. Ray J. Of the Mi'kmaq um, uh, flag, which is the opposite of uh, the Templar uh, a Templar flag. It's just it's just reversed. So. Oh wow. He's right about that. <clears throat> That's really interesting as well. well yeah. I can't believe all of this. It's fascinating. I got another question from Jake Forder saying, what evidence is there of pre-Columbus Templars? I, we just have been talking about it for the last 15 minutes. I got to ask I, the questions. I got to ask the questions, yeah, no, Scott. No, 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 that's okay. I, 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 think for me, <laughs> I think for me, some of the most powerful evidence would be the rune stones, the Newport Tower. It's an exact replication architecturally 
of, uh, of round Tepler church architecture. Uh, it's an observatory. It's a calendar. It's a clock. Um, it, it's, it's immensely complicated. The more we dig into it, the more we find uh, the complexity of it. The current narrative is that it's a windmill. Um, the thing isn't even round. It couldn't possibly function as a windmill. Structurally, uh, it's built on eight round heavy columns. It would be torn apart if it was ever used as a windmill because it never was. Um, you know, these documents, the Cremona document, um, the uh, Sinclair Weems journals, um, <laughs> I mean, the, the evidence is overwhelming. The um, you just have to read. And, you know, yeah. um, we've got we've got scholars that have been classically conditioned that this did not happen. This is not part of the narrative. And I've had debates with them. I just had one on Twitter and this guy was ready to debate me, a medieval uh, scholar. And the first piece of evidence I put up, he was done. He's gone dark. And yeah, and I can, I, I can I can tell you. It was a medieval rune called the dotted R that scholars didn't know about until 1935 when they found two, uh, four examples on two different inscriptions. And then they published it in 1938. But yet it's on the Kensington runestone that was found in 1898. Are you going to tell me that this Swedish farmer knew about this rare medieval ruin that the scholars in Scandinavia didn't know about till 1935? I don't think so. That ruin all by itself proves it's a medieval artifact. And the connection to the Templars is irrefutable. And, and we know the party that brought them over here and, and carved the stone. There's a direct alignment between the Kensington runestone and the Newport Tower, which means they were built by the same people. Look at the architecture. Look at the astronomical alignments. Look at the round church architecture in Bornholm. They were using those churches astronomically to calculate the circumference of the earth. Once you know the circumference of the earth, you know how big it is, you know how many supplies you need to travel between places. This gave them a strategic advantage against their competitors. All this is coming out now, and all people have to do is read it, and all the scholars have to do is put, take off the blinders, open their minds, and look at this stuff. It's obvious, and it's going to change yeah. the history of the world. It's not going to change the history of the world. It's going to get the history right because it's so, you know, it's so bass backwards right now. It's ridiculous. Scott, we're going to have to let you go, but there's, there is another question that you've already answered, but I mean, people aren't always there at the end and stuff. And I wonder if you might be able to quickly answer it and also tell us wait till where I to get and stuff in just like a 30 in. second thing. Cause yeah, it's, a, it's sure. a, I Scott wondering if you, Oh no, it's a, it's a question that says uh, hi Scott wondering if you are a mason which you said before that you yes were. I am but uh, I am um, a mason. Yeah. I am also uh Go I've been in, I've been knighted as a, a Templar in three different Templar orders both Masonic and non-Masonic and um I've learned some interesting information from those orders as well okay and where can people find all your where do you want to send people social media YouTube and stuff well, if they want to read more about some of the work that we've done and actually get involved in the discussion, I would invite you to go to my my blog, which is uh, www.scottwolteranswers, one word, .blogspot.com. And if you're interested in seeing any of my books, uh, go to www.hookedx.com. That's H 
O-O-K-E-D-X.com. And uh, anybody that buys a book on the website, I sign them all. And um, I encourage people to check out the tour that we're going to start next Wednesday. Uh, we'll start in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia. And then we're going to go down to America Stonehenge. And uh, there's going to be an event on Halloween. And then uh, we'll finish it off in our capital city of uh, Washington, D.C. And we're going to reveal a lot of these secrets uh, of this hidden history uh, about the Templars. And uh, they're really our true founding fathers. They just handed the obligation on to the Brotherhood and they finished the job. And what's last thing I would say is it's really important that people understand this history especially in America, because right now our constitution and our republic is under siege by this, you know, far-right fanaticism, this Christian fanaticism who wants to make our uh, country a, a Christian nation. That's not what our founders intended. They wanted people to practice any faith they wanted, because whatever you call deity or that thing up there, we're all talking about the same thing. And that's what unites us all. Um, not divides us by picking and choosing. And um, that's what needs to needs to come out. Oh, that's beautifully put, Scott. Thank you. And uh, thank you so much for coming on. And there was more to talk about as well. It's just we ran out of time, but you, it was brilliant. I, I, I fast, So much I learned because I don't know anything about this stuff. It's really interesting. So thank you and have a lovely day, Scott. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. Let's do it again soon. Yeah, I'm sure we will. I'm sure they'll get, you know, Ash and the producer, Ash, will probably sort that out. Thank you, oh, Scott. Yeah. What a legend. Scott, great. Uh, I love having things explained so beautifully, eloquently, um, and and just fascinating me, to be honest, because I didn't know any of that stuff. Um, right, people, I'm going to get our next guest. I'm looking in the people bit. It's going to be Mal Hyman, uh, people who are live now. Mm -mm -mm. Let's go to the next page. So, hmm, can't yet see Mal in the thing. <laughs> no, so I shall message Ash. But well, I just say to Ash, Ash, because you're probably listening. I can't currently see Mal uh, or oh, any Hyman. Is yeah, yeah. So. Let's see if if I can soon. I'm getting a message. Um, but yeah, what do you guys think of that? Let me know if you've got any questions or questions about the show. Uh, I don't know. I don't know where Sean is. I can tell you about On the Edge, of course, as Ash is insisting I do. I'm sure by now most of you uh, have come across my channel. Uh, I just had, well, also I had Mike Rinder, who was on tonight on Sean's show, but he was on a couple of days ago. I've been following a lot of the Scientology stuff with the... Um, upcoming rape trial around any masterson uh who was in that 70s show and apparently it was uh from from what i've heard quite aggressive i mean all, all rape is aggressive of course but i'm talking like you know violently attacking people and grabbing them and stuff and he could go away for the rest of his life tomorrow on on the edge with andrew gold on the youtube channel uh, and on the audio podcast is my episode with hg tudor who is a narcissistic psychopath or a psychopathic narcissist. I always forget which way he says it. But that was one of my favorite ones. I love talking to people like him because uh, you don't have to compete for virtue. 
you can just uh you know i don't have to pretend i'm nicer than i am and he doesn't have to and it's all a good bit of fun can you see two ash michaels let's have a look uh at the moment i can only see one. Oh, i can see mal in there now let's get mal Okay, so Mal's there, and he'll probably pop up in a second. Da, 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 da. Just Mal? Yes. How are you doing? I'm well. Glad we finally oh. got the connection. I How know, are you doing? right? I am very well, thanks. Very tired. I've been traveling all day, but um, Ash forced me to still work. So Ash, the producer, that is, because he's a real taskmaster. <laughs> So, so here I am, and, and you know what? I've learned so much already, so I'm very, very happy um, to be here. Tell me a bit about your background. You're an associate professor at Coca uh, University? Yeah, the last 35 years. Prior to that, I taught in the public schools and five years in a medium security men's prison. I've been active in community affairs, monitored foreign elections, done human rights work in Central America and the Middle East, Ran for Congress as a Democrat, a Bernie Democrat, in 2016 and 2018, uh, and uh, finished writing a book on the media and the Kennedy assassination in 2019. I'm in the midst of revisions on that book. Hmm. Can I just ask you to, is it possible for you to sit closer or to angle the camera down slightly as well? Sure. Yeah. Sorry about that. That's right. Otherwise, it looks like I'm trying to trying to do some sort of power play um, by being taller in the in the screen than you. <laughs> there you go. That's yeah. That's much better. That's better. Much much better. So um, today we're going to be talking obviously about uh, JFK and the Cold War and the secrets going on. So this was a very secretive time. Uh, how does sort of the secrets of the Cold War and things play into the whole JFK uh, theory? Well, you're right. It was at the height of the Cold War. Uh, there were an awful lot of operations that were kept uh, from President Eisenhower, who preceded President Kennedy. And a lot of information was kept from President Kennedy and from Congress, as well as from the public. Uh, so it's made the access to documents much more difficult. Uh, and uh, the nature of what happened uh, came at a time when there was a general predisposition with Americans to trust their government. Although after the assassination of John Kennedy, the trust in government dropped from about 70% to somewhere around 30%. Hmm. And in America, we've never regained that trust in government. Kennedy was probably killed because he was trying to end the Cold War. I mean, you, you wow. look at motives and he was uh, trying to rein in the banks and prosecute the mafia, rein in the CIA, the FBI, military spending. On social issues, he was as progressive as FDR, Franklin Roosevelt. He had an awful lot of enemies. Uh, and uh, his assassination, we still lack somewhere around 50,000 pages of documents to this day, even though after a number of committees have looked at this, they have required that they be completely released, uh, yet they haven't been. Uh, so we, we have some of that Cold War mentality and an overclassification of documents that isn't just on this case, 
but it's there on 9-11 or who killed Robert Kennedy or the real causes for the war in Iraq or what was going on in Afghanistan. In general, there's an overclassification of documents, but it was an even stronger overclassification, uh, as you rightly infer, during the Cold War. Why might they um, refuse to release said documents? Because this was now uh, 60, 60 years ago. Uh, I, I imagine usually they would they would refuse to release documents because they want to save their own hides. Uh, but but there but there wouldn't be anyone working there anymore back then. Well, you're right with your supposition. Uh, they're looking to protect the uh, legacy and reputation of the Secret Service, the FBI, the CIA, the military all of which had a hand in not releasing documents and not cooperating with the Warren Commission, which was set up to look at the, the assassination uh, at first, uh, and then the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Um, but that this has, uh, has continued where those agencies have not fully cooperated. I moved into this uh, in part out of a keen interest where I was teaching a class on political assassinations in 1989. And I want to share with your viewers, a student in my class said, oh, I know one of the Congress people who headed the House Select Committee on Assassinations that reopened the Warren Commission. Would you like to meet him? She set it up and I had a long conversation with him, a couple hours. And he was in his late 70s heir to a fortune. He'd been a judge and a six-term congressperson. And we talked for quite a while, and it was very frank. And at the end of it, he said his committee needed a lot more time and money, and that the CIA, the FBI, and the military did not cooperate with his committee. They cooperated some, but not very much. Uh, and he encouraged me to continue my investigation. This was the head of the committee saying it in private, and it was a political epiphany for me. It was an admission that his committee was lied to. We now know the chief counsel from that House Select Committee on Assassinations, Robert Blakey, former professor of law at Notre Dame, has said the CIA lied to his committee and he wouldn't trust them unless he could verify what they were saying. Now, he didn't say that right after the committee closed in 1979, but he said it subsequent to that. So in essence, in America, all the major institutions broke down in finding out who killed President Kennedy, and it completely changed the direction of the country. It is a destiny betrayed, and a lot of those uh, agencies want to protect their reputation even to this day. The Secret Service destroyed files, the military misfiled things and destroyed files. The CIA has not fully cooperated 58 years later. And of course, this lays a template for, for those who were trying to find out what really went on. Uh, and I wanna submit that it's important, even though it was 58 years ago, because America's trajectory would have been very different if we would have moved to end the Cold War, to pull out of Vietnam, to finally have health care for all, to limit military spending 
and put it in social programs to rein in our FBI, our CIA, our banks, our international banks, and there would have been a change in foreign policy, all of which was overturned under President Johnson. So the banks, uh, the CIA and the FBI had interest in the continuation of the Cold War. Absolutely, as did military contractors. Uh, And I want to underscore that a lot of people in the military and the CIA honestly didn't trust the Soviets and the Chinese communists. They saw them as in great cooperation, a threat to liberty, a threat to religious freedom. Uh, They had overemphasized the degree of the threat and that that misalignment and misperception continued right up to the end of the Soviet Union when it fell apart in 1991. Uh, Just as I think in part, there's been an overestimation of the power of Putin's military. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But uh, yes, all of those groups had an interest. Kennedy was trying to rein in the banks. He saw international banks as not operating in the interest of developing countries and non-aligned countries. And there were a number of cold warriors at the time that basically confused Khrushchev with Stalin. Uh, It was an ideological mindset. When they talked about the Cold War, the emphasis was on war. And of course, there were hundreds of billions of dollars to be made in military profits uh, with the war. Yeah, I just got a a, 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 war in Vietnam. I'm sorry. I I just got a phrase sent from Ash, the producer, which was from Julian. They want a continuous war, not a successful war. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, we've had uh, continuous wars. Uh, People in the CIA and military upon retirement have written about this. And this is the nature of a a military industrial complex that uh, on his on his retirement, uh, Dwight David Eisenhower, when he was president in 1961, warned America of a military industrial complex that would threaten our liberties. And every warship launched and rocket fired was a theft from those who were hungry and aren't fed. Kennedy took heart to that and was changing the direction of U.S. foreign policy, limiting military spending. Uh, he was, you know, from an Irish Catholic tradition and had seen the oppression of British colonialism and he wanted to end it. Uh, so he had a very different take on where America should be going for foreign policy. Johnson was hawkish, as was Nixon. Uh, At at times, we have had presidents that have been less hawkish, but have not significantly cut military spending. And at this point, the United States spends more on its military than the next eight largest militaries in the world combined. Wow. Wow. Well, that is quite scary, and I suppose that makes sense why wouldn't they wouldn't want to release it, um, what, what really happened back then. How sure are you? I mean, what percentage are you sure that this was not just a lone marksman, a lone agitator? Well, we've uh, had a long time to look at this, and while the public has not had access to the best information, uh, either from the mainstream media that cooperated 
with the government early on uh, and then didn't look closely at what the Warren Commission said, a lot of information has come out over the years. Now, I looked at, at media coverage, hoping that the media would be able to do a better job on it. In America, the fourth estate, freedom of the press. But on national security issues, they tend to be very cautious. And as a tradition from World War II, they cooperate with the military and the Central Intelligence Agency, seeing it as a matter of national security. Uh, but over the years, a lot of information has come out. And to briefly make the case, I mean, Oswald, the supposed lone nut, didn't have powder burns on his face from firing supposedly a Mandelker Carcano rifle from 88 yards away. We can't link him to the rifle. We have no witnesses putting him up in the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. I mean, even the police chief understood shots were coming from the right front as well as from behind which is consistent with what the doctors at Parkland Hospital said. And they were forced under pressure to change what they had to say hmm. as to the location of the wounds. So we've got shots from the front, from behind. Oswald, Oswald claimed that he was a patsy. His ties were to the military, to the CIA, uh, and uh, it's been difficult over the years to get those files released. Some were destroyed, others have been kept uh, from the public. So I, I think it's fair to say that Oswald didn't fire the shots with uh, Manlicher Carcano, which was a terrible rifle and supposedly had a cheap scope on it. The shot was from 88 yards away to a limousine moving away and at an angle, whereas the shots from the uh, Grassy Knoll area would have been from like from home to first base, would have been 30 yards, uh, a slightly downward trajectory, a much easier shot. And that's what 52 witnesses in Dealey Plaza said. Shots came from the right front. And that's where the Dallas police went at first. And that's what the uh, police chief, Jesse Curry, said at first. So I, I think we're looking at shots coming from two directions, perhaps three. There are big arguments that people can get into about the nature of the wounds and the autopsy. But I think any clear reading of the facts shows shots came from the front and, and behind, which would mean it's some sort of conspiracy. Uh, what Oswald knew, uh, we never were able to find out because he was, of course, murdered by Jack Ruby, somebody that he knew, and Ruby knew the police and was able to get into the Dallas uh, police headquarters, and two days after the assassination was able to, to murder Oswald. It's at this point that information goes out from the, the acting attorney general, Nicholas Katzenbach, and J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, that the public must be convinced that Oswald was the lone assassin and he didn't have Confederates. And this went out to the major mass media uh, as well as to government agencies. Now, some have made the argument that, well, you know, Oswald uh, defected to the Soviet Union and married a 
Soviet woman and came back into the United States. And if the public knew of this after the Cuban Missile Crisis, this could lead to the public demanding a response and it could lead to World War III. That's what Lyndon Johnson, the president, is saying to the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. And we have this on tape two days after the assassination, excuse me, the day after the assassination. And Hoover is saying, well, we really don't know if somebody was misrepresenting Oswald going into the Cuban and Russian embassies in Mexico City in October, but we don't think it was Oswald based on the pictures or on his voice. And Johnson then uses that as the pretext to cover things up, that this could lead to World War III, even though now we have plenty of information that it wasn't Oswald that was in Mexico City uh, two months before the assassination, and that uh, Oswald was meeting with uh, CIA, the FBI, and had a background in military intelligence and appears to have been set up as a patsy. So then would you does that does that amount to a hundred percent sure? Well, I think at this point we have a fact pattern that would indicate that Oswald didn't fire a rifle, although shots could have been fired from the Texas School Book Depository, and they were certainly fired from in front, which would mean a conspiracy. Now I'm willing mm-hmm. to to admit that we're in the realm of speculation because all the files haven't been released yet. And it'd be good to get the files released so that we could move methodically forward uh, about this case, because by not figuring out what happened, what we've done is open the door to all sorts of people that will talk about conspiracy, many of whom aren't very much fact-based in their analysis. Now I want to spin this out very quickly because one of the people that had a very popular show on conspiracies was a guy named Alex Jones. And at first he was Mm -hmm. doing some decent work and he got a big following and he asked questions about 9-11 where we need to have questions answered and we don't have them answered on that according to senators that served on that committee. But by not answering the questions and getting a following of those who likes to spin stories about conspiracies, Alex Jones has made a conspiracy of everything, including that the last election in the United States, the presidential election in 2020, was stolen. And he was active in whipping up the fervor for people to be at the Capitol January 6th and to spread mm-hmm. the lie that that election wasn't fair that it was stolen. Now, you might not like Biden or think he's a tool of corporate America or that he's boring or misguided, but the fact is it was a fair election and he was elected. And by not answering questions on conspiracies, it leads to further distrust of government and people who who pass off themselves as, as telling the truth they're able to confuse and polarize the American public with great ramifications for democracy. Yeah, I mean, the, the Sandy Hook stuff was particularly egregious. The, the, his, suge- his suggestion, it was, what was it, a false flag, would you say? Sure. And uh, he, he 
probably knew what he was saying, but he was spinning a story. And I think once people turn into psychopaths, it's pretty easy to continue lying. I mean, I, mm. I've dealt with a number of people in a state prison, and I would say it got me ready to look more clearly at national and international politics. I've got a question um, again from Ray J. Do you think the mob had incriminating evidence on Hoover? I think it's quite possible. We haven't been able to prove that. Uh, Hoover was gay at a time when you couldn't be gay and be in the FBI, and he hid it. And there have been many credible sources that have written that the mob followed him, found out about his love with his top aide, uh, Clyde Tolson, and then uh, used that as leverage against him. I think that is quite possible. Uh, the FBI at the time was quite strong. Uh, Hoover had uh, been empowered during the time of eight different administrations. We've never had an FBI or a CIA, for that matter, that had been under such limited surveillance. And one of the standard methods that Hoover would use is to find the secret lives of political officials and blackmail them, including John Kennedy who was blackmailed by Hoover, who found out about one of his affairs with Judith, Judith Exner. And he literally had the president with his pants down. And that became the pretext for the FBI to monitor Martin Luther King with formal wiretaps. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think the mob might have had that information. And I also think Jack Ruby's whole career was with the mob. And it's fair to note that the Kennedys were prosecuting the mob very aggressively, and Johnson didn't. Prosecutions of the mob dropped off about 80% after John Kennedy was assassinated. I think the mob had reason to be involved, but they were a minor player. They didn't set this up. Uh, I think we're looking at probably Alan Dulles and Lyndon Johnson having significant hands in it, if I'm to take the liberty of speculating. The mob was a junior partner in the assassination efforts of Fidel Castro. And that came out in 1976 when Senator Church ran his hearings of the CIA. Uh, and they never really finished the hearings because Church wanted to use it as a springboard to run for the presidency. And that's really the last time in the United States we've had extensive Senate hearings of the CIA. But that was some of the information that came out with the mob as a junior partner, because they had ties in Cuba to assassinate Fidel Castro. The CIA was the major partner that initiated those assassination efforts. We're, we're running out of time, This, uh, but thank you so much. Do you want to tell the audience where to go and find your work and stuff? My book, uh, Burying the Lead, uh, the mass media and the assassination of John Kennedy is available on Amazon. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really pleased to be able to talk with you about this. I'm, I'm going to be at a conference on political assassinations in Dallas in November. If people are interested, Kappa is one of the groups that's going to be there. It's around the time, uh, November uh, 17th to the 20th. Uh, there are experts that might enjoy 
um, that you might want to have on your show that deal with the assassination of Martin Luther King. Uh, some of the other people that have recently written books, I can get you in touch with. And, and I want to thank you for the opportunity. Oh, thank you so much. People do go and support Mal's work and go and look it all up and buy his book. Uh, and Mal, you have a lovely day. You too. Thank you. He was great. That oh, this has been a great show, and that was really, really fascinating. He really knows his stuff. Uh, a great speaker too. Let's see if I can get Stephen back in here. I've invited him on, and then I believe I'm inviting. Let's see, is it Graham? Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. Yeah, Graham Rendell. So there, Stephen. You're right, mate. I'm great. How is it that your guests are able to leave so promptly and mine just loiter around like the ghost of Christmas past? Is that when you you mean on Patreon? Um, previously, actually, on the YouTube stream. Well, on the YouTube stream, you can just click the thing, can't you? I think you can click them off. Or maybe, oh, because I've got Sean's uh, password so and you've stuff. You've got the power. You are the master of the universe in this scenario. <laughs> yeah, I don't usually on um, on Crowdcast, well, oh, this thing that we're doing for Patreon, uh, but I, on YouTube, I, I've, I've, I'm, I'm sort of messing about and I can click people off. But usually I have to wait on Crowdcast mm. for Sean to take people <laughs> off as well. And it's loitering. We're just sort of sitting there. You never know. You're like, oh, it's is it? Moment, and then suddenly they're it? gone. Yeah. It is a fun, very scary moment. I'm looking to see if I can find uh, Graham to bring you uh, to bring on. Um, mm, 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 just looking down this list, Stephen. When you uh, update everyone of what you've been up to in the last hour, I have mostly been stuffing my face with food, entertaining Ooh. the fiance. Uh, that's about Ooh, it, really. What mine? Yeah, so. my fiance. <laughs> <laughs> Are we both getting married, Stephen? I I've got engaged a couple of weeks ago. So Congratulations, me too. Um, we not, not to each other. Are you time. getting engaged? Graham, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's lovely to see you here. Oh, I think is your microphone. I think he's just gone. Oh, Graham, are you with us? Okay, now yeah, we I'm here. Hello, hello, hello. I'm going to leave you guys, and I'll be back. Uh, I'll be back later. Take care. Uh, Have a good evening. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you guys just talk. I'll figure out how to leave. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Graham. We appear to be having some technical hitches this Don't evening. Worry, how how used, are you, I'm, sir? I'm fine. Thank you. I've never used Crowdcast before either, so it's all a bit of a learning experience for me. It, yeah, it's a mystery to me as well. So it's good. To, I mean, I would like to say you're in capable hands, but you've got no chance, unfortunately. Yeah, that's all right. the, um, the government are making a complete arse of the, of the country at the moment as well, so you can't be doing a worse job than they are. This is a very good point. Yeah, it's uh, it's reached the point of entertainment, really, hasn't it, unfortunately? Yeah. Should we just slag off the Tories for half an yeah, hour? Yeah, we'll do that for, uh, for half an hour, shall we? Uh, <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, for the, maybe for the people in the audience and the chat who are not familiar with your work, maybe you can just describe what it is that keeps you busy. Yeah, so um, I've got a background in aviation history, but I've turned that on its head and I work in uh, sort of ufology now. So I'm writing about uh, aer um, aerial encounters between pilots and an air crew and things they just can't identify. So what you would call UFOs, uh, I suppose. And I've written a series of books, starting with um, a book about the Foo Fighters of World War Two but other associated phenomena which happened during during that conflict. And then I've just brought a book out called Dawn of the Flying Saucers, which I think we're going to talk about, which deals with the same kind of um, aerial sightings from 1946 to 1949. But I've also written one called Flying Saucer Fever, which is the same deal from 50 to 52. So there's a series of books, if you like, that people can read, which basically charts the progress of the sightings 
that were you know by by pilots and aircrew and passengers as well in air, in airplanes um, right across from four, uh, 1940 right through to 52 and I'll probably end up doing more books in this series as well Wow, so that goes way back, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. So yeah. I, I suppose what most people will want to know is uh, wh- where does your interest fall in this? Are you someone who's sort of like uh, an objective observer who hasn't made their mind up on the existence of extraterrestrials and UFOs? Or are you like an ardent believer of the the idea that aliens have visited us? No, uh, my colleagues at uh, UAP Media UK, who, who the group I belong to, uh, we're, we're, we're after advocacy and um, with transparency in government, basically about about this issue. I don't. I'm not a true believer. Uh, I'm not a skeptic. I, I fall in between. Um, when people read my books, that if they're expecting answers, they're not going to get them. Um, I, I basically sit on the fence because. I don't really know what's going on. I put the facts as I can see them in terms of um, intelligence documents, reports, newspaper clippings, all the rest of it. And I, and I write a, a kind of story about what's happening or what's happened. But I'll leave it to the to the readership to actually work out what they think these things are. I'm not going to put sort of you know ideas on their head by coming up with some kind of um, you know sort of theory or some agenda or some narrative. Uh, I'd like you know the, the people who read the books to go away and make their own minds up as to what they are. And whether that's you know whether that's the the nothing they're just people mistaking other things for for these objects or whether there's something to them or whether they are aliens which is not a word I usually use um, it, it's just a case of you know that's why I, I write these books is just to inform people that things have happened but not to tell them what they are in the Foo Fighters book I, I'd actually labour the point of saying what they weren't because a lot of things that you read on the internet over the years and in books have suggested that there's some kind of newfangled uh, kind of german secret weapon but actually when you look at the evidence in terms of what the germans were up to during the war the things that they were there was the pilots were seeing and the kind of maneuvers they were making and the speeds they were going at and all the rest of it they can't have been what the germans were, were building because there's just too much of a gap between those. And I go into quite a lot of detail. Bearing in mind, I've got a, a background in aviation history, and I'm also an interest in World War II and German secret weapons, which I've had that interest for over 40 years now. So I felt confident to be able to write that kind of thing. But I use the aviation background as well that I've got in terms of writing about aviation history, just to bring a, a slightly different perspective into the slightly more modern sightings in, in the late 40s and early 50s, um, and just come up with you know explanations as to what some of the terminology means so the layman when they're reading you know these books about the the pilots and aircrew and what they're saying in terms of the intelligence reports because some of them are quite dry and a lot of jargons being used etc etc and i just want to make it a bit more accessible for people as well i've just been asked to speak about the book i think uh, stephen's having technical problems at his end so the book basically starts with in 1946, and this is before the, the sort of accepted start of modern ufology, which is June 1947, which is with uh, Kenneth Arnold and his sighting over the northwest of, of, of the United States of America. Uh, it's quite a famous sighting, that is. However, that's the one that people say, say this is where modern-day ufology started. It was a, um, he was flying an aircraft. He was in search of a, a crashed aircraft in the mountains. He was looking for it for a reward, um, but he saw these nine heel-shaped objects flying in, uh, in a kind of extended line formation, um, th- snaking through the mountains, if you like. Uh, and that's recognised as being the, modern day, the start of modern-day ufology. However, when you look at the records and you look at the reports, 
these things were seen long before that. I mean, they were seen in 1946. There are reports of these things being seen over Sweden and over Scandinavia in 1946. In fact, there was a, a phenomenon called the ghost rockets, which happened back then. Um, so you're setting the clock back even further. And actually, talking about the Foo Fighters as before, you can see the reports from the U.S. Army Air Force in sort of about November 1944 through to the end of the war in Europe, seeing these balls of light that were following their airplanes. Now, that's accepted wisdom in terms of the Foo Fighters. However, the Americans sort of pilots actually saw these things long before that accepted date as well. So really, this kind of accepted history, this accepted wisdom is being turned on its head when new information comes out. Um, and, you know, people like myself find um, extra information in the archives. Now, when you, you go back through these dates, you actually push this start date even further back. And American pilots were seeing things through October, September, and even earlier in 1944. The RAF, the Royal Air Force, were seeing them as well. And, of course, they were seeing them over Germany, but they were seeing them on other fronts. Uh, they were seeing them over Italy, over the Balkans uh, in 1944. But the reports that I've come across uh, and are found in archives set that date, that kind of start date, even further back, even into 1942. So there's a, a story, and it's actually it's the cover of the Foo Fighters book that I wrote uh, last year, and there's a story of a, of a Polish Wellington crew who are flying over Germany from Britain, and it's on a raid over Essen in March 42. And this orange light comes up behind the aeroplane, and it basically sits there. Um, now, the crew think it's a German uh, weapon of some description, a, a night fighter, etc. And um, the tail gun is told to open fire at it. And all the bullets are going into this object, and it just basically soaks up the, the bullets. It then moves around to the, the, the wingtip of the aeroplane and sits there. And again, the gunners are firing at it. And then it moves around to the front of the aeroplane and the gunners are kind of firing at it from the, from the front. But nothing happens. There's no damage. It, it's not put on fire. It doesn't dive away. It just sits there. And then it just disappears off into the distance. Now, this is long. This is two years before the accepted start of the Foo Fighters. So, you know, these dates are going much further back in terms of things which can't be explained and, you know, and kind of rational explanations. And, and they're seeing much earlier. Uh, so, you know, th this kind of I guess it's a myth that the modern-day ufology started in June 1947. There was a lot happened in the, in the years before that. Um, but, okay, well, you know, this date of June 47, it's just been etched into the public kind of psyche, if you like. And every time you see a, you see a book or an internet uh, you know, webpage or whatever about the UFOs, that tends to be when it says. Hello, you're back with us. Graham, can you see me and hear me? I certainly can. Apologies for that. I did actually still manage, <laughs> I still managed to hear everything you said, luckily, Good. and I, it was quite clear almost instantly that despite the technical issues, you did not need me at all. <laughs> so I, I don't know if, whether I should just go make it. Wind, wind me up and just let me go. Yeah, no, that was excellent. It's very, uh, you dealt with that incredibly well. It's fascinating. I have to apologise. I've got a bit of a sore throat at the moment, so sorry about that. That's all right. You, you would never know. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> So, I mean, it's really fascinating what you were saying there a bit earlier about the Foo Fighters and that you, people thinking it was one thing and then it couldn't have been the Germans, etc. And I'm, I'm just wondering how much of all of this in terms of UFO sightings and people's interest in it can be chalked off by the fact that the military are very secretive about technology and undoubtedly will be developing all sorts of things and testing it under the radar of public scrutiny. Oh, sure. There are things that you know, we don't know about even now and there are things that have been 
kept secret for lots of years. In the chat there, someone mentions about the F-117 Nighthawk, the cell fighter, and it was about 12 to 15 years between its uh, inception and it being made you know, public. So it was about the mid-1970s where the first prototype was built, and then it was 1989 for the Panama uh, attack when the, the, the Americans sort of you know, brought it in, in the public sphere. So you're looking at 12 to 15 years, and the B-2 stealth bomber had a, a similar kind of timescale between when it was built and when it was unveiled. Uh, and yet people were seeing, presumably seeing these things in the intervening periods and wondering what they were. If you go even further back in history, to the 1950s and 1960s, uh, before the, the U-2 spy plane. Now, you've just been speaking to somebody who was dealing with uh, the JFK assassination. But if you go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis and slightly before that, the shooting down of the U-2 over Russia in May 1960, the, the U-2 spy plane had been operating you know, before that. And, of course, it wasn't really made public. And the, the U.S. Air Force were quite happy to have people seeing it and just like saying, oh, well, I've seen a UFO, uh, because they were happy to keep the pretense up that you know, this thing didn't exist. And I'm sure there are other programs around that people have, you know, whether it's the Russians, the Chinese, the Americans, us, um, that are so secret that they can't unveil them at present, and they're being seen occasionally, and because people don't know what they, where they are, and they might look fairly exotic, that they're being you know, sort of passed off as UFOs. And that's probably the same throughout history. However, some of these things that have been seen and reported, the maneuverability and the speeds, etc., are just so wild in terms of what you know, was around at the time. And I'm going back to the 1940s and 1950s here, that it's impossible to say that they're actually something that we've created. Because if that was the case, though that bit of technology would have surfaced by now, because we're now looking you know, 50, 60, 70 years ahead, um, so anything secret must, should have come out. It would be sitting in a museum somewhere because it would be outdated <laughs> even now, you know. Uh, um, and, and even the things that Kenneth Arnold saw in, in June 1947, he estimated, bearing in mind he was measuring the time these things took to, to go from one uh, mountain to another, and he estimated them at a minimum of about 1,300 miles an hour. Now, that was twice the speed of the fastest jet fighter in service with the U.S. Air Force at the time. So, you know, you've got that kind of quantum leap in terms of extra kind of speed, and you don't get those kind of you know, huge leaps in technology. And then for 50, so, sorry, for around 70 odd years, that doesn't come out ever, you know, because we're not, we don't know about that, those heel-shaped objects. Uh, we've never seen them. They've never been unveiled. Um, there's never been a hint of, of what those are, if they are terrestrial technology. So what were they? Where did they come from? Now, I'm not going to tell you, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say those are alien spacecraft because I don't know what they are. Um, and that's, you know, not really my job to say, you know, I, I know what they are because I don't and I don't have the information to say that. But they're definitely something strange because they were going quicker and they're certainly shaped different than anything really that was around then. They don't have wings, didn't have um, observable kind of power plants. So, you know, what were they? It's a great question. And uh, the questions are always good in this area, I find. And I often speak to, I've spoke to a number of people on this show, actually, who are a UFO um, enthusiast, and they dedicate all their time to researching this. And they're always overwhelmingly in the camp of it's aliens, it's extraterrestrial. And when I, as a skeptic, ask for the best possible piece of evidence they can give to convince someone like me, it always boils down to eyewitness testimony and anecdotes. And for me, uh, that doesn't quite cut it, unfortunately. I just wanted to get your opinion on how much value you put in eyewitness testimony surrounding stories of UFO sightings. 
I think that at the moment that's really the best we have. Short of somebody coming up with something on national TV and saying, "Look, this is a bit of a, a bit of a craft." You <laughs> yeah, know, a then, bit of a craft would be helpful, yeah, wouldn't it? That's right. That would be the kind of you know the mother load. <laughs> that would be the thing that tipped things. And that day may come, but you have to. I suppose the next best thing is to look, as we say, is to look at the witness te- you know, testimony, but also to have it maybe corroborated by yes. multiple witness testimony because if you have the set if you have multiple people saying roughly the same thing net you know so the stories won't be exact but if they're saying roughly the same thing then that leads to suggest that there's an overwhelming kind of weight of evidence to suggest that something happened as to what that might definitely be then that's a different story um but if you just i mean people that might, might read my books will see this kind of overwhelming weight of testimonies to strange things. Now, again, you know, going back to what I said before, I'm not suggesting that these are all alien spacecraft, or even any of them are, but as to what they are, they're certainly not what kind of the, the, the intelligence officers were, uh, were turning around and saying, well, look, they're just, you know, they're just weather balloons, or they're other airplanes, or they're, or they're birds, or, or what have you. Um, when you see some of the official explanations and then you stack that up against what was reported, and that doesn't make sense. And you have to remember that these pilots were trained professionals, not only just in training to, train to be flying the aircraft, but also to be observers. You know, much like police officers are, um, you know, they, they are trained, uh, you know, observers in their field that they, they notice things that are out of place, whether it's to do with the aircraft instrumentation. Or, you know, or the aircraft itself, or weather conditions, or things around them, or objects, you know, other aircraft that they see, or things that are flying around, you know, with them in their airspace. They're trained to you know, to recognise maybe a different type of aeroplane because it could be a threat if they're a military pilot. But also, if they come across something that they just don't know what it is because they've never encountered it before, then of course that's going to raise a red flag somewhere. Um, and you have to take them at the word. Um, just to, the to point... um, just to build on this idea of taking eyewitness testimonies, Jake in, Jake Forder in the chat just picked up on a thought that I I often have about this, and it's that they uh, he says in an age where almost everybody has an HD camera, mm-hmm. there are no clear images or videos of genuine UAP. So it seems like in an age where everyone's a practically a, a walking multimedia factory, we we still can't get that smoking gun. Uh, why the trouble is, is yeah, the trouble is with modern uh, mobile fo- you know, phone cameras. It's they're all, they're great for taking pictures of people, you know, places, all the rest of it. But if you're trying to take a picture of a, like an object, let's say the moon, for instance, you you go and take a picture of the moon with your mobile phone without zooming right in and see what happens and see what kind of picture you get. You won't get much of an image. Mm. Now that's probably the same with these. And if you take a picture of a fast flying airplane with a mobile camera you can't really get that that much of an image it'll be blurred it, it won't be that sharp whereas i used to take i used to do something called low level aviation photography where i'd stand on the side of a mountain with a camera with a 100 to 400 millimeter tele, telephoto lens and it was like top level kit and you know you'd still struggle to get sharp imagery of a jet flying below you at 400 miles an hour and you had 20 seconds to like you know sort of acquire the image focus shoot and, and make sure it was spot on you know so and that's difficult with with proper camera equipment and if you've got you've got this kind of like an iphone 11 or something like i've got you know you can't take pictures like that you know with the best will in the world so if somebody's seeing um some kind of like a disc in the sky let's say for argument's sake um you, you take a picture of it with, a, with an iphone you're not going to get that decent image, despite the fact that it's quite an all-seeing, all-dancing camera for kind of close-ups and for landscapes and all that kind of thing. They're just not compatible with that kind of, you know, trying to take that kind of image. So whilst it sounds good, 
the reality, and we've seen that so many times when people have tried to take pictures of images and they show them on social media, and they just don't look that, you know, that impressive because they can't be with, that, with the restrictions of the technology at the moment. But that may change in the future. It's a, it's a good answer for sure. I suppose it would be remiss of me not to take advantage of your aviation knowledge and get your opinion on the uh, the sighting, which is widely become known as the Tic Tac sighting. Yeah. And this was incredibly exciting for me because I'm somebody who doesn't believe in that UFOs have ever visited the planet. I've been very unimpressed with the evidence I've seen, but this was something that was tangible. It was observed by military equipment. We had video footage of it and credible eyewitnesses eyeballed the thing. So something was there. This is undoubtedly true that something was there and we don't know what. Now, given you know a lot about aviation and how planes uh, propel themselves, how they move, what speeds they can move at, what were your thoughts looking at this if we were to consider that it is actually some sort of technology? Is it, is it possible that it maps onto anything we know that exists right now? So in, in your chat, you mentioned that somebody asked, you know, were these things picked up on radar? So the Nimitz case, which is it's called the Nimitz case, and it's in November 2004, and these things were seen on radar before they were seen visually. So it's what they call a radar visual case, uh, which is going back to what we were talking about before about corroboration. So when you get not just people like eye, you know, eyewitness testimony, but you've got you know, sort of kind of technology picking these things up as well, there's another little strand. So that adds to something. So just to set the story for the people who don't know, um, a kind of fleet of these things, there were multiple objects being seen, um, effectively dropping out of the skies from about 80,000 feet by a very sophisticated naval radar system on board a guided missile frigate. Um, uh, sorry, destroyer, I beg your pardon. Um, in part of a carrier battle group off the west coast of America, uh, off, off San Diego, Los Angeles area. And... After a few days of seeing these things flying in, in formation at very high altitude, and then they start suddenly dropping towards sea level, um, they got towards the point where they were interfering with a planned exercise area for aircraft uh, moving, um, taking off from one of these from one of the carriers. It happened to be the USS Nimitz. Excuse me, <coughs> the sore throat's really getting worse. Sorry, that's um, okay. Take your time. So. Um, I'll just take a sip of water, excuse me. Yeah, let's, let's have a water break. Mm. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so the, one of the, the, the chief radar operator on board this, this guided missile destroyer asks permission to send a couple of, uh, to actually investigate the, one of these contacts on the nearest one by sending a couple of jets in the, in the direction of it. And this is agreed. And two aircraft which are on a, a, a training flight are vectored towards the nearest of these contacts. And it's apparently just hovering over the surface of the water. Anyway, they're directed to it, and that they see this thing, and it's about, you know, it's just about wave top height. And it's, they describe, the pilots described it as, imagine a ping pong ball in a bottle being shaken about, and it's just going random like this kind of thing. No kind of um, method you can't see any kind of pattern. It's just bouncing about, except it wasn't bouncing off anything. It was just zigzagging kind of off um, in, a, in, a, in a strange pattern above the water. Anyway, the, the leader of the of the, this two um, aircraft, he was actually the squadron commander for, for this particular unit, uh, a man called uh, Commander David Fraver. He decided to drop down from 30,000 feet down 
a little bit further down to actually get a closer look at this thing. And he estimated it had been about 47 foot long, about the size of an F-18, uh, which they were flying. And it was shaped like a tic-tac, like, you know, like the, the mint. Um, so as he went down towards it, he was diving down. It, he said that it turned on its axis then went whoop like that's how, that's how he described it he made that little noise <laughs> it was pointing directly at him and it shot up towards him now this thing didn't have wings it didn't have any kind of rocket motor didn't have propellers didn't have a jet engine it was just a kind of strange tic-tac shaped object and as it was coming up towards him the 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 object and his aircraft i'm going to do some hand waving here um they were basically in this kind of um kind of spiraling motion so they're both trying to get on each other's tails. And that's effectively a dogfight, if you like, without you know, opening fire at each other. So they were going round and round circles with each trying to get on each other's tail. And at one stage, a fravor had almost, you know, kind of his fighter pilot instincts were kicking in and he tried to cut the corner on it to get right behind its tail. And it basically just zoomed off past him. Um, and, and when he talks about zooming off, it rocketed past him at an unbelievable speed. Now, this isn't just some kind of random person on the ground, some, some civilian. This is a highly trained U.S. Navy pilot who's had years of experience, you know, not only just flying airplanes, but flying airplanes off aircraft carriers, which is one, probably one of the de most dangerous professions in the world for a pilot. Anyway, the radar people then contacted the, 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 the him and said, you'll never guess where this thing's just turned up. It's at your cap point, which is basically a pre-planned rendezvous point in the sky for that, uh, those two aircraft to, before they go back to the carrier. And that's where it was sitting. And then, well, of course, when they got there on the, on the route back to the, to the carrier, it had gone. Um, but that's a, in, in essence, that's the, um, that's the story. Now, this thing, had, uh, they worked out how far, how quick it had got from where they were to where the cap point was, which is about 60 miles. And it had done it in you know less than a minute. They reckon that it was doing it was this thing was doing something like thirty five thousand miles an hour or, or whatever. It was incredibly quick. Now, you know, you would expect sonic booms. You would expect almost the thing to burst into flames going that quick through the atmosphere. And yet, you know, it it just sat. It hovered apparently at the cap point. It was just sitting in space. So. You know, if anybody can tell me the kind of technology that's needed to kind of, you know, bounce around with no kind of turning, banking, just kind of straight turns like this, and then it can get into a dogfight, it can recognize something coming down after it, it can then engage in a, in a maneuver, a counter maneuvers with it, and then rocket off in the distance at an incredible, like, hypersonic speeds, and then just sit there, then... You know, I'd love somebody to say, yeah, the Chinese have built that or the Russians have built that. And if that's the case, then they should be ruling the world by now. And if the Americans have built it, then they should be doing the same. They should be lording it over the Chinese um, or, or over the Taiwan Straits. Or they should be just giving it to the Ukrainians to just kick the Russians out of the country, you know, because that technology is unbelievable. So, no so what you're saying is it's aliens is. then? It's definitely aliens um, no, is what you're saying. I'm, that's the thing, that, I'm that's not. That's what you said? Graham just said it's aliens. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> we just don't know what it is. It's not sufficiently explain, you know, explained. Now, some people have come out of the woodwork, especially on social media, and said, look, this is something American test. I, you know, um, comments, I know this is, Ameri this is American technology. And then, of course, the question goes, well, how do you know that? Where's the proof? Um, because... 
that is a huge, huge leap in, in capabilities from what they have now. Why, why, why are the Americans flying around in F-15s and F-18s when they've got something like this on their hands? You know, why do they need to spend money by building the F-35 Lightning, um, you know, which isn't really that much sort of further on from those aircraft when they've got something that can fly thousands of miles an hour quicker, can stop in midair and all the rest of it. It just seems stupid. Now, just one last thing, if you don't mind. There's parallels, funnily enough, between that incident and something I wrote about in the Foo Fighters book, and this goes back to 1943. Um, there was a New, uh, Royal New Zealand Air Force pilot from 73 Squadron who was operating over North Africa in the spring of 1943, and he got into a similar kind of engagement, albeit the speed's much, much lower, with an orange light that followed him, and then he, tried to, he managed to get into it behind it and open fire at it with these 20 millimeter cannons from the hurricane he was flying, um, and nothing happened. This thing just kept flying. Um, it, it reacted to his manoeuvres, but he found that he, could, he there was a bit of a delay and he could actually get behind it every so often until it sort of, um, if you like, reacted enough to get back on his tail. And he did a few times open fire on it. Now, he, he wrote to the New Zealand uh, Air Minister in 1955 after a famous UFO sighting that year to say, look, this is what happened to me during the war. Um, and it turns out that some of the other pilots from that particular unit also saw uh, various strange things over North Africa. And so that's a lot of them, corroborated. And a lot uh, of them were quite sceptical, like yourself, until it happened to them. So, you know, it's, you can imagine the kind of thing in the crew room, you know, after all these missions when they were having a pint after, after, the, uh, after the day's exercises or, or the, having breakfast the, the morning after for a night mission. And, you know, they're laughing at the guy who said, look, I've seen something that's flown after me, this orange light, which I can't shoot down. You, know, you can imagine the kind of comments and the, the kind of, you know, the, the, the nicknames you would get and all the, you know, the ribaldry and all the rest of it until it happened to them. And there's, there's exactly. a few other stories. Graham, I'd love to listen to you. Sorry to cut in. I'd love to listen to you talk right. about this all night. And I'll definitely look to pick up your books. But we've just run out of time, unfortunately. I think we've got just enough time to let people know where they can find your books if you'd like to let them know. Sure. Uh, if you look at my uh, look for my name on Amazon, Graham Rendell, you'll find them on there. They're all for sale there. Um, there's uh, the ebook, softbook, or hardback versions. If uh, if Graham writes half as well as you can talk about this, you're in good hands. So definitely check them out. Graham, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Apologies for them technical hitches earlier, but you've uh, you've been a great guest. You're welcome, Stephen. Thanks very much for inviting me. No problem. Good evening. Wow, that is a passionate, knowledgeable gentleman. I, I, I hate to admit this, but I definitely did not need to be here for that <laughs> entire thing. Um, so, yeah, I might have to might have to think about speaking to Graham again on my own podcast. I can go and put the kettle on, put my feet up and just let him let him run with it. But um, it'd be interesting to know from the chat where we are on UFOs. I'm not I don't always assume everyone believes in ufos maybe there's some hardcore cynical boring skeptics like me hanging out in the chat um but yeah it's certainly fascinating now we're seeing some declassified information from the military and it's real it's tangible it's corroborated something is there for the first time in this entire argument about ufos you can say with 100 percent certainty that something is there it has been recorded um so we're just waiting for our next guest to join us uh i'll just see if i can get an update on where they might be but uh it'd be nice to hear in the chat if any of you have actually had any personal 
experience of UFO encounters. Ah, good evening. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Can you hear me all right? I can hear you fine. How are you today, sir? Doing really well. How about yourself? Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Uh, for those of us who are not familiar with your work, uh, maybe you can uh, let us know what it is and what you do, please, Dr. Masters. Yeah, my name is uh, Mike Masters. I'm a professor of biological anthropology at Montana Tech, which is a science and engineering university in southwest Montana. Um, my background is in paleoanthropology. I got a PhD from the Ohio State University uh, here in the U.S. in 2009 and do research in biomedicine, archaeology, um, human variation, hominin evolutionary anatomy. And I'm um, here today to talk about UFOs. I wrote a book in 2019 uh, examining whether UFOs and aliens could be time-traveling humans from the future coming back to visit and study their own past in the same way that I would as uh, an anthropologist if I had access to that that time travel technology. That is certainly one hell of a hypothesis. Uh, I mean, it makes sense. It's worth exploring, and I'm not claiming to have all the answers or anything, but I do think that uh, if we look at the phenomenon in the context of, of time travel and our own evolutionary history, it's... It's definitely worth keeping on the table. Okay, so this is fascinating to me. So I, I'm kind of, I suppose, open to the idea of sort of panspermia, maybe the human race starting due to some extraterrestrial DNA coming to the, the Earth via a comet or something like that. That sort of makes sense in my head that that could happen. But how do we get into the realm of time travel? This is This is far more exciting than I could have imagined. Well, I mean, it, I consider it sort of in an Occam's razor context, the, the simplest uh, with the fewest assumptions, the simplest explanation in that we, uh, we know we're here. Um, we know we've had a long evolutionary history on this planet, both in the development of our physiology, our technology, our culture. And if we persist into the future, I think we can look at what people describe in these reports, both in the technology of the craft, which I think at least as far as the, the disc-shaped versions are the actual time machine itself, um, and in the phy physiology of these, these aliens, what I refer to as extra-tempestrials, um, where they seemingly have what we would expect to see in the future based on enduring long-term evolutionary trends in hominin evolution, most notably bigger heads, bigger eyes, smaller faces, um, upright walking bipedalism, which is the trait that defines the hominin lineage. So if we take all of these traits, the fact that they can communicate in our languages, they can breathe our air, um, they have technology very similar to our own, but just advanced slightly beyond our own. So if we take all of these in the context of what we know about ourselves in the last six to eight million years of hominin evolution, I think um, there's there's good reason to to weigh the evidence in the context of, of this model. And um, especially with regard to the extraterrestrial hypothesis, ultra-terrestrials, crypto-terrestrials, all these other models put forth to explain the phenomenon. Um, everything should be on the table at this point, but I definitely think this one has the potential to explain a good bit of the phenomenon, at least uh, based on the limited amount of knowledge that we have today. All right, there's a lot to work with there. So, I mean, you spoke about um, <clears throat> concepts such as alien physiology and aliens being able to speak our language, and you spoke about those things in terms of established fact, I suppose. And for me, uh, I'm not I'm not sure where I could see those things having been established already. So, wh where are we looking to get an idea of what alien physiology is? Where has that been observed? 
Yeah, no, I, I certainly wasn't uh, implying that this was established fact, but we we do need to expand our standards of evidence to move beyond the way we typically work within hypothesis testing and the scientific method. Um, if we were to just take a purely materialist quantitative approach to this, we'll be overlooking a lot of aspects of, of what's happening. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think we can consider these eyewitness accounts in the context of scientific evidence, but we can definitely look at them in the context of how evidence would be allowable in a court of law. And if we have enough of these, and that was the purpose of writing my most recent book that just came out in June of this year, is, is looking at all these different cases that have been uh, been vetted, they've been researched, they have multiple witnesses, um, all of these, these strangeness and, and reliability factors that Jay Allen Hynek used to make reference to when he was assessing the credibility of an account. So if we look at all of these, patterns do start to emerge. And a big point in writing this was to look at those patterns and try to identify things that could help us understand what's going on. If we just talk about the pilots and we just talk about what's captured in you know one of these cockpit videos, we're overlooking a massive of information and a lot that can potentially help us really unravel what's going on and, and the origins of these craft and these beings. So um, yeah, I, I don't think it fits neatly within the context of the standards of evidence and our current materialist views of, of our scientific approaches in the present day, but it absolutely doesn't mean they should be discounted and we should only be looking at things that can be captured uh, with highly sophisticated technology. There's way more going on and it's all part of the same thing. You flip over that coin and there's a whole nother side to this that should also be considered. Okay. So uh, why would uh, sort of futuristic advanced beings not want to communicate in terms of make contact, in terms of establish they are what they are? What, what, why, the, uh, why the mystery, the secrecy and the avoidance of that encounter? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think there's a few things going on there. One, we just aren't really at the point where we could probably wrap our heads around this as a species. Um, it wasn't that long since I think it was 1938 when uh, Orson Welles broadcast of H.G. Wells's book came out and everybody freaked out about it. And that was probably a big red flag about where we are <laughs> with our uh, ability to suspend disbelief and deal with ontological shock. But I do think also that um, even into recent times, we, we don't talk about time. We struggle to understand time. And if we look at it in the context of the block universe and the block time theory, which is the dominant model to explain uh, space time, at least in the context of modern physics, then, then it's not really an issue of changing something or disrupting the timeline because everything's self-consistent within that. Anything they would come back and do in the past, they'd already done before they came back to do it simply because these bridges between these different points in space time are already linked and there's no change per se. But if we look at it in the context of the Everett interpretation, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, then there's issues with regard to timeline disruptions. Even coming back to the past is thought to create quantum decoherence and the bifurcation of our timeline into two separate timelines. Anything that's done in that time is also likely to do that. So I, I approach it more from the block universe model, but to answer your question, that's one potential reason that's oftentimes mentioned is there could be disruptions to the timeline and things that could affect us even beyond 
the implications for our economy, politics, society as a whole, it could be that there's some sort of more disruptive aspect to this. I don't necessarily think that's true for my research, but it's it's something to consider. I mean, it also, it's worth considering ethical perspectives if they have a full understanding of human history and yeah. they have the power to intervene and don't. Is there, is there, uh, uh, is there, <laughs> is there a possible time travel uh, worth uh, worthy sanctions on aliens at some point, perhaps for the, <laughs> the 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 things they didn't do? I mean, I suppose what what I'd like to ask as well is like uh, I think the idea of time travel is such a huge concept that if anyone ever did figure it out, which I'm highly skeptical of, we, we probably wouldn't be able to conceptualize what that would look like right now. But you you appear to be saying that it's actually mobile; it's a it's a time traveling vessel in that sense. And I'm just trying to get my head around how that could possibly work. I mean, I, I, I was thinking in my 2022 brain, are, are people sitting in what is essentially a, a moving vehicle and putting a date into the equivalent of Google Maps? Uh, are they sat nav there and navigating that way? I mean, how, how can we possibly begin to explain how something like that might work? Yeah, I don't think that's too far off. Um, but at this point, in our, all of our limited 2022 brains, we're just not there yet. We haven't figured out how to reconcile uh, gravity and quantum mechanics. We don't have a, a way of really bridging the divide between general relativity and, and, and gravitational forces, which I think is a big stumbling block. But we also, physicists and, and philosophers will tell you that time is an emergent phenomenon. There's something more fundamental to this that we don't yet understand. Many think that space is also emergent and we don't really understand what's fundamental about space time. And, and once we do, I think, yeah, it'll be perhaps quite similar to what you just described. If we can think of, um, you know, if we can think of this block universe is spread out across a piece of paper and we want to go from this point to that point, it might be as simple as going between those in space time. Uh, we think of it more in the context of space because we can travel through space easily. Traveling through time will likely uh, require some closed time like curves and likely, well, what what's seemingly a recurring pattern is ever since Einstein published his paper on general relativity in, in 1915, Almost instantly, there were solutions to his field equations that showed that the rotation of a massive or highly energetic ring, sphere, and disk eventually with Frank Tipler in the 1970s demonstrated that you could create closed time-like curves. You could bend over light cones so that locally you're still moving forward, but you're moving into the global past. And we have this expression in biology that form follows function. And if we look at the form of these ships, especially the, the disk-shaped ones like Frank Tipler, uh, he didn't make this connection, but showed how you can have a, a rapidly rotating disk of finite size that does create these closed timeline curves and allows those occupants within the ship to travel into the past. So if the form of these indicates the function of backward time travel, then yeah, I have to I have to think that maybe that is the machine that does it. And 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 yeah, it's a physical thing. Uh, if we talk about consciousness, seemingly our consciousness is not bound by space time outside of our bodies or in our subconscious while we're dreaming or on psychedelic trips or whatever. But as far as actually visiting the past in a physical materialist sense, I do think it's going to take a machine and a lot of energy and a lot of knowledge beyond what we have today. But what's seemingly come up again and again in researching this, especially my most recent book, is that I think it's going to happen sooner than I previously thought, maybe within even the next 50 or 100 years. I don't think we're too far from it. And you if you cracking, cracking time, time travel as a species, yeah, figuring wow. out time travel, figuring out how to 
actually do it. My first book just focused on these gray aliens and those reports. And uh, I hypothesize that they're probably a very distant point in our future, that they're coming back from possibly 40, 50,000 years in the future. But then in researching this most recent book, there's so many cases where the, the beings that walk out of these craft are dressed like us. They look like us. They're not using telepathy. They're just using vocalized speech. They have bathrooms, kitchens, all of the same things that we would expect to have in our spaceships or time ships. So, yeah, I think it's probably likely something we possibly even have it. I don't, I don't know. I can't say I don't have any hookups in the intelligence community or anything like that. But if if a ship did crash in 1947 outside of Roswell, New Mexico, we've had 70 plus years to figure out how the thing works. And I think the first thing would be the the anti-gravity aspects of it, how it flies. But then if there is a time component to this, and I think the two are extremely integrated, I think those G-forces that we see, like in the Tic Tac and all of these other uh, maneuverability characteristics, the transmedium aspects of these ships, is simply because they're manipulating space-time in the general vicinity around that craft. So I think it's highly integrated with their propulsion system, and they're not doing a 10,000 G maneuver. We just see that in our frame of reference. But within the context of their temporal reference frame inside that ship, it's likely a 1G maneuver or possibly 0Gs. They might be able to correct for that as they move through both time and space. So I think I think we need to consider that this might be uh, right around the corner. We might learn about this sooner than later, especially if they are us and they're just kind of waiting for us to catch up to that point where we can fully wrap our heads around what's going on. Yeah, I mean, it's an exciting concept. I don't know if you, you ever saw that meme going around of the protester holding holding a placard and i think it said uh, what do we want time travel when do we want it irrelevant <laughs> i think kind of that's a great point though i mean if it's already happening it, it, if it's already in existence in the future it, it's already in the past if they can yeah. travel beyond this point in the past and i think there is an upper limit but if it exists in the future because of what we're talking about, yeah, that's that's a good point. It's irrelevant. Well, I suppose what I'd like to ask as well is what sort of reaction have you had from colleagues and peers? Because this area of discourse, UFOs, flying saucers, little green men, it's, it's, it's very taboo. It's not taken seriously by the intelligentsia that much, uh, depending on where you look, I suppose. So what, what kind of reaction have you had to your research? Um, well, it's, it's been quite positive, actually. I think, um, you know, I, I went, I, I went through grad school, I had a, a, a well researched dissertation, I've been collaborating with researchers in Japan and Spain and at institutions throughout Europe and, and the United States. And I have a, a strong publication record, I think people know I'm not crazy. Um, this just kind of makes sense, you know, and so I, I try to methodically lay out an argument for this. Again, I don't have any insights beyond what's available to us right now at this time, which is a, a limiting factor in trying to describe these things that exist uh, either outside our world or outside our time. But it's also important to remember that if they are coming back through time, it's not just speculating about the future. It's not just using these past trends, which I think are informative, too to extrapolate what might be going on in the future. We're actually seeing these things. We're catching glimpses of them. We can study them and we can learn from that. And so I think just by trying to take a conservative approach and really draw from long-term trends in our, our physiology, our culture, our technology, and then showing how conservatively if these carry on into the future, 
these things match up. We're, we're talking about something that we're likely to have and likely to look like with something that already exists now in our times. And not just now, the phenomenon didn't start in 1947. It's been going on for thousands of years, possibly tens of thousands of years, if we can consider things like intentional cranial modification, cave paintings, petroglyphs, geoglyphs. So I, I think just looking at all of it holistically, and that's what we do in anthropo anthropology. We take a holistic scientific study of humankind throughout time and across space. So I'm really just applying an anthropological approach to this UAP question. And what seems to make the most sense, what shakes out of all of it is time travel. It's our descendants coming back from the future. So with that being said, and you, you've um seem to think that time travel isn't quite as far as people might think where, where do you suspect how far in the time time ahead are these crafts coming from would you say to have that sort of technology and and to still be humanoid in the sense that they you know they haven't evolved for billion years into something completely unrecognizable where would you place them on, on the time scale yeah, that's that's a good question. I I really avoided that question for a long time because it's it's hard to really extrapolate our future based on past trends because there's variation, there's sex variation, age variation, geographic variation, um, which are likely to exist in the future too. But I think we can also add temporal variation to that. That we're not just talking about one group coming back from one time in the future. What I think we're dealing with, and this helps explain a lot of the variation. Uh, described with regard to these beings is that once that technology exists, much like the advent of fire tools, it's not just going to go away. It's going to continue to be a part of our future. So I think they're likely coming back from different points spread throughout the future. So we'd expect to see slightly different technologies, variation in the craft. We'd expect to see variation in their physiological form, their morphological form, if they are coming back from, say, 500 years as opposed to 5,000 or 50,000. In the same way that we went back now, you visit people 100 years ago, we look almost identical. You go back 50,000 years, we're starting to look pretty different, and our technology is godlike. It's like magic to them, which is commonly described among modern and past peoples, too. You go back 100,000, 300,000 years, now we're the, the the big, bald ones with really advanced technology and big eyes and big brains. So uh, I think we can kind of look to the past to understand how we might be seeing them in the future and how they might be seeing us, too. And I think there are a lot of ethical and moral issues associated with this, like you mentioned previously. And I try to tackle that more in this this more recent book, because we're talking about violations to people's personal space, human rights, morality, ethical issues with abducting people if these Accounts are true. Um, taking sperm, egg, developing fetuses in some cases. There's there's definitely a palpable ethical aspect to this that, that should be considered as well. Not to mention they haven't had the common courtesy to give you a call and let you know whether your research is correct or not. You think you think they might reach out? Um, <laughs> that wasn't a serious knows. question. You don't have to answer that uh, at all. I don't well, know. Since it'd be cool Sorry, if they did, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, what what, would whether be a... I'm right or wrong, it saved me a lot of time if they were like, hey, uh, you're off in left field here. So. <laughs> Maybe just give you some pointers. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, Let's turn this ship around, buddy. So, I mean, is this is this something 
I mean, you spoke about it in terms of you're not stating facts, you, you're kind of hypothesizing, you're asking questions, and it makes sense to you from a logical perspective. But I suppose what I'm, I'm trying to get at is, do you actually believe it? Are you convinced that you've uncovered a truth here? Or is are, are you basically just playing with the idea of possibilities? More of the latter. Um, we, we don't talk about, in, in scientific pursuits, we don't talk about truth we don't talk about even proving you can't prove something because there's always some other thing that could come along and disprove it so we're constantly evolving our understanding of the way the world works the universe around us and i think with regard to this uap issue which i've been following almost my entire life in one form or another um it's it's worthy of consideration i think it explains a lot of things that are pitfalls with the extraterrestrial hypothesis, which has kind of been the default way of explaining this phenomenon. Oh, if it's not China, Russia, it must be aliens. That that oversimplifies a very complex question. So I think we need to move beyond that and start talking about all valid theories and, and really try to figure out which one makes the most sense, which one has the most explanatory power, which one's the most parsimonious uh, solution to to the problem so no i'm i'm not proclaiming any truths we're just at a point where we can't know um all i'm trying to do is take what we do know and can know and build a case for what seems to be the simplest explanation yeah i mean it always comes back to roswell doesn't it that's lived in the mind of so many people and fascinated so many people for so long trying to figure out what the truth is there and i suppose my question would be um if that was a legitimate instance of extraterrestrial visitation involving crafts and, and aliens and the government knew that is there a government competent enough on planet earth right now to be able to keep them things secret because when i look at governments i see a mass of incompetence and, and people making mistakes and following vested interests and we you know we've had things like wikileaks for instance and the amount mm. of things that the government seem incapable of keeping secret anyway it just doesn't bode well that they'd be able to sit on something like that and I, I suppose it would imply some sort of international cooperation on that level with china and russia as well what, what are your thoughts on the competency competency of government in keeping these secrets yeah, I mean, and France and Germany and Japan and Brazil, all of these other nations, I, I think we're we're too quick to say China and Russia, China and Russia. There's yeah. a lot of other players in the international community, and especially when it comes to research. I noticed you South didn't Korea. mention the UK there, though, which is fine. Yeah, well, you guys are a little behind the times, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and the UK, I apologize. My <laughs> my ancestry is is from Wales, so I, oh, great. I shouldn't have overlooked that. You're right. Um, but yeah, no, I think that you're right. I think governments, if we're talking about the power structure and the politics, I, I would have to agree. I don't think they're capable of guarding something like this. Um, certain factions of the United States Department of Defense, like the Air Force or the CIA, may have been the ones that were instrumental in that. And we haven't really heard from either of those and all of this disclosure stuff that's happening with the congressional hearings, the U.S. Air Force, the Office of Special Investigations specifically, the CIA have been extremely quiet on all of this, but they've been studying this for a very long time. They've had the programs and they have had possibly recovered craft and beans and everything else. I, I, I don't get too deep into that, uh, I'll talk about the history of what we can know from Freedom of Information Act documents that come out. But I, I mean, I, yeah, I almost think to talk about this in any informed way 
instantly takes you down some sort of deep state conspiracy theory road because yeah governments are incompetent have been for a long time they're driven by ego machismo and i i I don't think that bodes well for trying to keep a secret for 70 plus years so i I don't know i mean could be some sort of majestic 12 thing could just be really tight-lipped people at the air force but yeah i think uh i think it probably goes deeper that's a very reasonable answer. So uh, since you uh, released your book in, in 2019, have you learned anything new or thought of anything new regarding the technology or the, the physiology of these potential time-traveling aliens? Yeah, I mean, I, I've had, I've always considered this an evolving project because it has to be. We can't know um, based on what's available to us now. And even in the three years since that book came out, I've had the opportunity to have conversations about this with so many people. Um, and yeah, things are constantly being pointed out to me that I overlooked. Uh, I think aspects related to, um, disease transmission, they seem to be, seem to be very cautious about interacting with us in an unsanitary environment. People who come on board are subjected to a a spray desanitation, sanitizing spray of some sort. They're asked to change clothes. People that are captured um, outside the ship, oftentimes they're wearing protective mask and self-circulating air. Um, The the G-forces thing I mentioned, that was mentioned to me by someone who did claim to have had a long career in the intelligence community. Um, I just, I overlooked that. It makes a lot of sense once it was explained to me, but not something I considered in the first book, the role of artificial intelligence, especially in cases like the Pascagoula encounter. Um, Yeah, a lot of things. The fact that it's probably going to be happening sooner than I thought, that was kind of a big revelation that just emerged as I was writing this last book over the previous three years. So there's been so much. I I can't imagine what the next three years is going to look like um, as I continue to to go deeper into this. And I'm sure it'll it'll just continue evolving for me and, and hopefully others, too. I do feel like people are talking about it more. And I think as we combine our consciousness, we'll collectively be able to sort of move the needle forward and understand things or at least pick out what doesn't make sense and focus on things that do. So yeah, I'm excited about where the conversation's going. For sure. Uh, somebody in the chat by the name of A Nexus has said, please ask Dr. Masters to come back, meaning come back on the show. He sounds gro- grounded and reasonable, which is refreshing, which I, I completely agree with. I, I suppose when you declare your interest, I think people may expect a certain type of person. Uh, they do, uh, you, you know, you mentioned <laughs> before true. about deep, uh, deep state. Uh, conspiracies and things like that it does seem to be a big stigma surrounded to the entire sort of enterprise of uh, interest in ufos doesn't there yeah absolutely and even when we talk about things like project sign project grudge project blue book which are well established as actual investigative entities um you have to start by saying this isn't conspiracy theory these actually existed and there's a, a long historical record to demonstrate that but I think it's changing. It's been good to see. Um, scientists should be involved in this. It's our job. It's what we we do when we sign up for this job is to investigate strange and mysterious things. So it's ridiculous that there's still a knee-jerk reaction among some more closed-minded people in academia. But I think that's changing too. And 
um, the more that get involved, the more we can really start to understand this. So it's great to see what's happening with NASA getting involved and the Navy changing their protocols and, and the governments around the world, not just the U.S., but around the world being more open to this. Canada, Belgium have been for a really long time. The U.K., uh, to some extent, and the U.S. is sort of behind in that, probably because we did have trade secrets to protect, which makes absolute sense. But um, yeah, as, as we diminish the stigma and we start to get more people involved in the conversation, I think it can only be a good thing. That's, yeah, very well put. Mike, thank you very much for your time. Maybe you can let people know where they can find your books or maybe if you've got a social media presence at all, people can find some more information on you from. Yeah, I think it's over here in the chat, but um, I, I've got a website. It's just michaelpmasters.com. There's links to all of those things in there. Um, but yeah, on the Twitter, the, the Instagram, the Facebook, uh, yeah, even, they're all I think in I the even chat have a now, LinkedIn yeah. account. Yeah, that, absolutely. That's great. Thanks. Wonderful. Thanks so much for having me on, and that was a fantastic conversation. So great show you have here, too. I like the sort of shotgun, you know, everybody just kind of popping up and, and having a go at it. It's a great format. It's like, it's like speed dating, isn't it? Yeah, really? it kind of is. Yeah. <laughs> Intellectual so are, speed dating. Are we dating now? I think this technically qualifies as the first date. So All right. yeah, there Fantastic. we go. Well, I look forward to number two. <laughs> Thanks again, Mike. <laughs> Have a pleasant day. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you. That was fascinating. Uh, it's funny when you, when you realize you're going to be speaking to someone who's going to be, talking about time traveling aliens as also an anthropologist you kind of trying to piece them two together but i think mike did a wonderful job getting his point across this is what i love about hosting this show get to speak to people that i normally would never think about reaching out for discussion so it's always fun uh, thank you everyone for watching atwood unleash you can find the show on audio boom I believe it's on rumble as well and if you want to check out some of my content just type the night tube with Stephen knight in youtube i interview people i go to events i i i go to street protest uh, i sometimes do a topical discussion show it's a bit of everything really so you know i'm sure you'll find something you might like but uh thank you very much for following along this evening and thank you very much for all your thoughtful questions have a pleasant day